Viewer discretion is advised. I put a spell on you. And now you're mine. <laughs> you can't stop the things I do. I ain't lying. No! No! Don't oh, look at them! 300 years, right down to the day. Now the witch is back. And there's hell to pay. <laughs> I put a spell on you. Good joke. Happy Halloween. Thanks a lot. No, man, and I'm serious. Yeah, yeah. You got it. Welcome to a special edition of the United Nations of Horror. I'm Becky Booth from the UK, and today I'm joined by... Mike from Chicago. Lucar Dragomir from Atlanta, Georgia in the US. And of course, welcome back to Mike, because you've been away for quite a few episodes now, haven't you? Yeah, very happy to be back. I've been eager to get back, but things just kept getting in the way. But happy to be here for this episode especially. Good to have you back, man. It's It has been too long. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we've missed you. Well, sadly, I don't get to shit on anything today. As much fun as I have with that, so. <laughs> so we have to wait. But once I actually like the movies we're talking about, we get happy, Mike, today. Yeah. Nobody ever sees that, so. <laughs> so. It's it's okay. You get to argue with me about one of the films we're going to talk about. Yeah, so. Yeah, there has to be one disagreement. Sides. That's interesting. <laughs> So today, yes, we will be returning to the polarizing subject that is found footage horror for the second of our three-part special in this series. And as previously stated in our first episode, we have segmented the series around two milestone films that received considerable critical and commercial success. And those films are The Blair Witch Project from 1999 and Paranormal Activity from 2009. So in the initial episode, we looked at the evolution and influence of some examples of realism in film, television, radio, literature and even theatre that we argued have actually led to what we consider to be the first example of the contemporary found footage film, which is critically determined to be The Blair Witch Project. So in this episode, we'll be looking in detail at the phenomenon of this film and its substantial impact on horror cinema. And we'll then be looking at a selection of found footage horror films released after The Blair Witch Project. So today, we'll also be looking at the Poughkeepsie tapes from 2007, Rec also from 2007, Cloverfield from 2008 and Late Mungo from 2008. To recap quickly on the definition of found footage, it's defined literally in terms of film as misplaced, forgotten, archived or privately owned motion picture recordings which document past events and which are subsequently rediscovered and made available for public viewing. 
So this is a motion picture or a segment of one that's photographed in the style of an amateurish or unedited documentary. So fan footage is the term used for a plot device within pseudo or fake documentaries or mockumentaries in which all or parts of a fictional film is presented as if it were discovered film or video recordings. And instead of a traditional omniscient director, you have filming actually completed by a character within the, the film's world, the diegetic world of the film. And found footage films have developed within popular cultural shifts and technological advancements. And of course, a key example of this is The Blair Witch Project from 1999. I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. I am so, so sorry. Because it is my fault. Because it was my project. The search of the three missing Montgomery College students continues in Frederick County tonight. Ten days and thousands of man hours have been unable to produce any clues. We have a few leads, um, a few other options we want to take advantage of and just try to put together some, uh, some pieces to this puzzle. Do you believe the occult may be involved in the disappearance of your son? I'm so scared. Getting into the film, um, it was written, directed and edited by Daniel Murick and Eduardo Sanchez. And it was allegedly made for $35,000, but grossed over $248 million worldwide. So it's one of the most successful independent films ever made. And I feel like that's a crime, and, and they should give <laughs> all of us some money, because my gosh, $248 million? That's so oh crazy. My oh my god. So I, I think oh. it's uh, like one of the most profitable movies ever made. It's right up there with like... Halloween, I think, and uh, Paranormal Activity. I've seen that on those lists before. I mean, I'm going to say a lot about this film today, but but there's no doubt that it was a phenomenon when it came out. And, you know, it's it made a lot of money because of very clever marketing. No doubt about that. That's it. And I'm sure that's the point you'll be arguing as opposed to the merits of the film itself. <laughs> yes, indeed. There you go. That's the show right there. No. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this fictional film, it follows three student filmmakers, Heather Donahue, Michael C. Williams, and Joshua Leonard, who disappeared while filming a college documentary project in the Black Hills near Burkittsville in Maryland in 1994, and they're investigating a local legend known as the Blair Witch. And the viewers are told that the three were never seen or heard from again in the opening titles, and the group's equipment, along with most of the footage that they shot, was discovered supposedly a year later, and the audience is made to believe that this recovered footage is the film that they're actually watching. Now, we have to kind of cast ourselves back to 1999 when there really wasn't anything like, you know, we're, we're calling this the first example of what we term to be, you know, the contemporary found footage film. It's a huge genre now or subgenre, but back then there was really nothing like it. And kind of harking back to our first episode in which we discussed Ghost Watch, 
the BBC mockumentary and also Orson Welles' adaptation of War of the Worlds in, I believe, 1939, that you know, manipulation of the audience in terms of, uh, you know, different mediums, radio and television to believe in that something's real. This really, for me, is the first case of a film actually being able to successfully. There's nothing that's been able to kind of do that since because now we're aware of the rules and conventions of, you know, the found footage film. Would you agree? Absolutely, for sure. Back then, I mean... There was a website, you know, and there is actually still one available that you can look at online um, dedicated to the legend. And that's pretty insane, really, considering that, you know, this is 20, nearly 20 years ago. Oh, the website's still up? Yeah, yeah. I was having a good old gander. That was quite fun. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's wild to think. And I don't think it's the kind of version that was up originally necessarily. I mean, it may be. Basically, it details the mythology, evidence files, and aftermath. So it has photos of the um, the actors as if, you know, everything's real. And it's worth a gander if you haven't seen it, but, you know, it's not incredibly detailed. It's designed to provide just enough information to spark interest and make people believe that the film was true, and people did. There was also a mockumentary that was released um, called The Curse of the Blair Witch. Have you seen this one? No, I've never heard of that. It's it's interesting, actually. It's on YouTube, and that's definitely worth a watch. You know, the protagonist's friends and acquaintances are interviewed in a very similar style, in a way, to the last broadcast, and the way that that film's designed, and just, again, to promote the idea that this was real. When did you both catch the film initially and did you think that it was real well i watched it for the first time about a year and a half ago so i obviously i knew it wasn't real i mean i was three when this came out i think it was in this 98 bless you yes at 99 okay so i I was four when this came out so yeah uh, (laughs) you're making me feel so old (laughs) (laughs) but i mean watching it obviously i i knew how it was fake my favorite kind of found footage and it's something that i'm I'm be uh, repeating myself a lot throughout these films because I think these all these films do something very similar right with found footage. And it just makes you really buy into it. It's a very genuine in these characters and their interactions. And it really, although I know it's fake, I believe it. I believe what I'm seeing. And I think that's an awesome kind of perfect illusion for found footage. I saw Blair Witch on home video when it came out. So I actually, I didn't see it in the theater I was very aware of it. I mean, how could you miss it with all the commercials and everything? I was still in high school when it came out. I was aware that the marketing was fake. I mean, like, I don't know. I I just, I knew it was not real, but it was an interesting marketing campaign to say the least. And I, I think that's why so many people flocked to the theater to see this because it was you know, it kind of had that word of mouth along with the great advertising campaign. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, for me personally, I, in 1999, I was 14 and the film was released um, later here in the UK and places like Australia. So we already kind of knew that it wasn't real. So we didn't have um, necessarily that notion that maybe in America, some audiences did of going in, you know, kind of cold where it would be, you know, a lot more of a, an immersive kind of experience. But I watched it also, um, I rented it um, on DVD at the time. And, you know, even though I knew it wasn't real, it was absolutely terrifying. And I really, really enjoyed it. But just to kind of pick up on your points there, and, you know, we're talking about here, like I said, the 
contemporary found footage films. So in terms of what that is, I mean, these films, we know that their events may or may not have happened. But, you know, we have that knowledge. Uh, but from the formal kind of structure that if they did occur, this is how they might look. And, you know, with the kind of amateur technology that anybody can kind of pick up, we're kind of led to believe that if it did happen, this is how it would happen. So it, like Mike said, it's kind of immersing yourself in that experience. And there is an element of believing that, you know, this could be real, even though we know it isn't. And, you know, I watched late mungo and i'll talk about that obviously later but with my sister last night and she as we turned it on you know you get the opening title she believed it was real straight away so it still kind of i think works you know that it was based on a true story or whatever so i think you know you can it does kind of grab some people especially if they're not aware of the genre horror necessarily yeah I, there were certainly people i knew uh one girl in particular i remember she believed blair witch project was real and I mean, she knew back then I was into, you know, horror and, and gothic stuff back in the day. Uh, gothic nerd for me anyway. But, um, you know, she was like, oh, you, you got to see this, Lucard. You got to see this. And I was just like, uh, I don't know. Um, like, even just seeing the commercials, like, I kind of knew what it was. But it's it's interesting that people do find it so immersive to me. And I definitely want us to talk about that more and, you know, why it's so immersive for you guys. Yeah, and I'm sure we will. There was actually a trilogy of video games um, released in 2000 based on the film. Were you aware of that? No, but I, I need to find them now. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't aware of that either. Um, like that seems kind of like the the perfect medium for uh, like a, a Blair Witch Project. I don't know if, if the games are good or not, but I mean, you know, you've got the first person view and everything. I I'd be interested to play that. I know that somebody's mentioned them in our feedback, so. I'd be interested to see what they say about the the games, but there has been a flood of different bits and bobs to do with the Blair Witch franchise. And this includes novels, dossiers, even comic books. I was aware of comic books, but I've never actually read any of them, but I'd be very interested to personally. I was listening to another podcast and apparently not long after the film was released, you could actually buy kind of make your own stick figure kits from fixing strings. <laughs> you had to go buy a kit for that. <laughs> hey, someone made a lot of money off oh, those. Do you get those with your pet rock? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, and you could like, I think there, you know, there were books detailing everything as if it was real, like case books, um, as well. And this then led to the sequel, which was released in two thousand, Book of Shadows: The Blair Witch Two. Have you seen this? Yeah. Is <laughs> what it is. Well, again, we'll get to it later on, but we've had some um, positive feedback um, about the uh, the sequel. About the sequel? Really? About the sequel, yeah. And it's, um, like I say, it's released in 2000, and it's described as a psychological horror film directed by Joe Berlinger. And it's very, for anybody who hasn't seen it, it isn't found footage. It is quite an unusual film, Um I think it's very much a case that the the filmmakers wanted to completely turn the you know the notion of the original film, the farm, and the style on its head because that had already been done, and they, they didn't feel that they could do it again because of the impact of the film. So you can understand that you know the audience reaction to it, but it wasn't very well received critically and commercially. I believe it has some interesting bits about it. I mean, again, it relies on video footage because 
you know, a group of young people kind of lose their memory after going into the woods and they kind of watch bits back and piece bits, you know, together. But it's a bit of a, um, a mixed bag and it's definitely got its flaws, but I must admit, I didn't find it to be, you know, terrible. It was watchable, but I'm guessing I'm the only person that... No, there's, like, interesting stuff. <laughs> I, think. I, I think it's got some interesting concepts in the, kind of in the first half of it, or in the first two-thirds, but it just kind of ends up being kind of a generic straight-to-DVD horror film in the woods, really, and it's got a completely unnecessary and, and dumb twist at the end of it. I think if you hadn't have tagged this as part of the Blair Witch kind of um, franchise, and I think it may have been kind of maybe, you know, received a little better. I don't know. Well, but I think I think I w- you would have just said it was a, a ripoff of the Blair Witch Project then, if it didn't have that name on it. Exactly. I, I don't know. I mean, if, you know, maybe they could have tweaked it a little bit, but I think it's just that the name, you know, just overpowers the film, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree. The filmmakers of the first film, Blair Witch Project, they said that they were influenced by a variety of films, uh, such as The Legend of Boggy Creek from 1972, Picnic at Hanging Rock, 1975, 84C Mopic, which is a Vietnam War film from 1989, Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills, 1996, and also Literature, Hansel and Gretel, uh, The Brothers Grimm, Macbeth, Pamela are virtue rewarded uh, from 1740 and the turn of the screw from 1898 by Henry James. Can you see any of those influences in the film? I don't see Macbeth. I don't. That's quite a variety. Yeah. Yeah. I see Hansel and Gretel, though. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, That kind of fairy tale um, aspect. Especially with the the house later on in the film. Oh, for uh, sure. I, I can definitely see that you know, the Hansel and Gretel influence there. But a lot of the other films I have not seen, so, you know, I, I can't necessarily say. I mean, like The Turn of the Screw, I mean, I know it's supernatural, but in a way it's kind of more psychological as well, so I can kind of see it in the way that it's, you know, that it's slow burn and you don't necessarily see much. Um, Picnic at Hanging Rock, definitely, especially um, in regards to the children within the film and, you know, the way that they were meant to have been victims and also the section at Coffin Rock as well, I think. But obviously we'll, we'll get into that. The tagline for the film, one of them, is in October of 1994, three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland, while shooting a documentary. A year later, their footage was found. And I think that's a fantastic tagline. Again, we're talking about how brilliant the marketing scheme was. And it just completely sums up the whole, the whole film, entices the audience, uh, with minimal kind of information and plays on the realism of the story. There's no doubt. I mean, that was very effective. And even watching it so many years later for a, a second time, that part of it was still effective. I really, really think so. And again, that goes back to the kind of fairy tale aspect. It's hard to kind of imagine now, especially for Mike, because he was four years old, um, yep. the kind of <laughs> how huge it was at the time. I mean, there were, you know, I think it had a couple of covers on magazines like Time. Just to put it in perspective, we were on Windows 98 back then. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, I mean, the Windows 98, it was, compared to what we have today, it sucked. I mean, we had the blue screen at death all the time. And, well, back then it sucked, you know, too. It was just the best thing you had. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, 
cell phones were not really a thing, if you think about that, or no. mobile phones, you know, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, things have just, uh, technology has changed so much then, since then. And, I mean, even camera technology, obviously, you know, when you look at this and, uh, I mean, now handheld cameras, just stuff you shoot looks amazing and vibrant compared to how footage looks in this film. Exactly. And, again, that just added to the veracity. I had a quote that I came across doing a bit of research um, by a critic called James Keller, who said that the only consistent topic for public discussion generated by the hype over the film was the hype itself. And that the film itself kind of exists in a very strange kind of bubble that it's the the kind of evidence the only thing left about that we just we've left all that behind and we can't really appreciate kind of the effect that it had on on filmmaking and how it kind of changed the landscape you know it absolutely flooded the market then with like we were saying this kind of amateur aesthetic and opened up really the um not just in terms of horror I think but probably mostly horror, but opened up the market for independent and amateur filmmakers to really have a crack. And obviously, you know, we were just flooded with examples straight after the film. Looking back, I think that it it did some good things and it did some bad things. I mean, it was it was great that it inspired independent filmmakers to go out and, and make original things, you know, and it was bad in the fact that I believe it brought a lot of really awful films that probably would never have really seen the light of day otherwise. But, you know, it's there's no doubt that it's had an impact. I will uh, certainly say that that is true. In terms of the production of the film, it was also extremely unusual in that the directors um, used handheld GPS equipment to direct the cast to predetermined points. And the actors had to find their own way to these locations and obviously were filming as they went. So it was all very much improvised. And at each point or checkpoint, the cast would find supplies for their equipment and their food and then obviously have to make their way onwards throughout the shoot. So it's a very kind of, when you watch the film and you're aware of that, you can really, I think, see that coming through in the actors kind of just how run down they are, I think, by the end. I mean... I know that Heather gets a lot of criticism, her character in particular, for the way that she's kind of presented. But I think it's quite a an interesting and, and kind of truthful presentation of that character and that role. Obviously, we'll, we'll get to that. The filmmakers were therefore criticised, the, the real filmmakers, for not actually filming the, you know, the film itself. And they found that in a lot of, like I say, critical circles, that this kind of new... Would you say it was kind of method, you know, a method version of filmmaking, not acting, just actual filmmaking. Now they're letting, they're kind of designing it and just letting the actors go with it. And they were, like I say, criticised for that and weren't really given credit for the film itself. What do you think of that? I don't, I don't think that's, that's fair. I, I think creating that kind of scenario for a film, that kind of structure, to me, is really kind of inventive and cool. It's a kind of guerrilla style of filmmaking, and it makes it... I feel like it makes the film feel more genuine, and that's what sucks you in. Um, I get what they're saying, I mean, as far as uh, what it says written by at the ending, and you can say, well, they didn't really write it, because it all kind of it was kind of done as it went along, but 
I, I feel like that the creators definitely should be given credit because uh, I, I think they created a really cool style, at least in my opinion. Well, it's interesting to me because I did not realize that they actually had the actors really shooting this, so that's something I did not know. Uh, I, I definitely feel like that affects the film and the camera work. For me, I don't enjoy the the shaky cam, so I would say that's not necessarily a good thing, but, uh, I mean, you got to give them credit because obviously it was successful, you know, <laughs> no doubt about that. I, You know, just to make one more point here, even reality television which I think we're past reality TV now. I mean, there's there are still reality TV things, but you know the the big boom that came in the early 2000s. I mean, you, maybe you could even credit that to the Blair Witch Project. What do you guys think? I could see that for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, th- that's the thing. You know, it's got such kind of far-reaching um, consequences, shall we say, that it was just a complete game changer, and. I know that the one of the directors, Ed, I think it's Eduardo Sanchez, um, yeah. he's on a podcast talking about the Blair Witch Project and his later work, and I'll, I'll post a link to that because it's really interesting to hear. And I mentioned this on the first um, episode in this series because he actually takes a question about comparisons to the last broadcast which was quite interesting because that was filmed before The Blair Witch Project, but it was released after. So that's quite interesting to hear. And there's also another podcast that has um, Mike, the actor, on. And he now um, works for a furniture removal company. Like, he's completely, uh, you know, it's insane, this amount of, you know, fame and, you know, just how he went in for a small project and it just obviously became huge overnight. And now he's completely retired from it. And he goes to conventions with the other two actors uh, from the film. They kind of meet up. But it's just, I think it's insane to think how that just kind of peaked like that in their careers. And I don't think the other two either have done anything really since, maybe just a couple of roles. I have to wonder if at the time they were thinking like, what the hell are we filming here? Like, is this even going to come out in the theater? Like, I wonder if they really sort of knew the vision that the directors had no and that's the thing and mike actually says on the on the podcast that he showed his family a clip and they were like what is this crap turn it off <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. yeah i think i remember you saying that last episode i mean that, that's pretty harsh for your own family to say that yeah so then obviously you know they must have been recognized everywhere but then to kind of come down from that you know, it's been kind of a crazy ride. But, you know, the directors know that Eduardo Sanchez directed an episode of Supernatural and he directed Exists, Lovely Molly, Intruders, um, a few episodes of that TV series and also a few episodes of them um, from Dust Till Dawn, the television series, because I know that you watch that, don't you, Lucard? Yes, yeah, I really enjoy that one. If we get into the plot of the film, the three filmmakers... After a few kind of opening scenes of them preparing for the trip, travel to Burkittsville, Maryland, formerly known as Blair, as the Blair Witch, and interview locals about the legend of the witch. And the locals tell them of a man called Rustin Parr, a hermit who kidnapped seven children in the 1940s and brought them to his house in the woods where he tortured and murdered them. And this obviously is where we get the links, I think, to the fairy tales as well um, that we're talking about before. And like I said, Picnic at Hanging Rock. 
and Pa brought the children into his house's basement in pairs, allegedly, forcing the first child to face the corner and listen to the other child scream as he murdered that child. Um, And then he would then murder the first child because he couldn't bear for the children to be looking at him while he was doing it, allegedly. And then he turned himself into the police, uh, pleaded insanity, and said that the spirits of Ellie Kedward, a witch hanged in the 18th century, had been terrorising him and promised to leave him alone if he murdered the children. And he was then hanged. And I think that's also got links to uh, Ghost Watch in terms of, um, was it Raymond Tunstall? The, um, I think he's a paedophile, uh, maybe a murderer, I'm not quite sure, but he said that he was possessed by the ghost of a child murdering woman who was a nanny or something. So it, yeah. I think it links to that. But what did you think of that kind of legend and how it linked him with the witch, that, that supposedly real true crime case? Well, I thought the first part of the film where they, they are interviewing these people is actually the most interesting and the best part of the film. Like I, you know, I thought that a lot of the people they were talking to were pretty convincing and um, yeah, that part really worked for me. At the beginning, when you build up that mythology, then that way later on in the film, it's not just them running around from sounds. You get a kind of feel of what it is that's potentially out there. And, And so I think it's really cool and it adds another layer of something to kind of fear later on in the movie. Yeah, I would agree. And it kind of sets the realism, like I said, that true crime element that something potentially did happen, but it was, you know, the, like you say, they kind of put an extra film on top of that as in, you know, it was related to a, a you know, supernatural paranormal event. So it's not kind of just a supernatural thing. So I think that kind of makes it scarier and more believable. You know, I think it's a very kind of subtle, clever plot point. And I also must say that, the kind of setup between the three characters because Mike is the sound guy and then you have Josh who's the cameraman and then Heather is you know it's her project she's kind of brought the other two on board and you have the switch between uh, different cameras and you I think you get like black and white and you get their kind of you know she's kind of recording the day-to-day events like a little bit diary on uh, you know just a standard uh, digital camera but then he josh has taken from uh, the university without telling anybody um you know a, a better camera basically and the film that in black and white and those are the shots really that we get of the actual documentary so it's constantly flitting between the two so what's real life and what is the documentary within the documentary and again i think that form that kind of formal element really helps to build up the realism and must have worked very well at the time for audiences that, you know, were more susceptible to believing this was real. This is Burkittsville, formerly Blair. It is a small, quiet Maryland town, much like a small, quiet town anywhere. No more than 20 families laid their roots here over 200 years ago, many of whom remain either on this hill or in the town below. There are an unusually high number of children laid to rest here, most of whom passed in the 1940s. Yet no one in the town seems to recall anything unusual about this time, to us anyway. Yet legend tells a different story, one whose evidence is all around us, etched in stone. Well, we have shot the first scene, the cemetery scene. The opening is shot. 
Oh, we're doing a documentary yeah. about the Blair Witch. Oh. Oh, have you heard of the Blair Witch? Oh, yeah. That, that's an old, old, old story. You've heard of the Blair Witch? Several times. Several times. And yep. what was the first incident? incident well, I've heard, I've heard stories about her from people and neighbors and stuff like that. But also, I saw a documentary on the Discovery Channel or somewhere. Really? Once about her, about the ghosts really? and legends of Maryland. Yeah, it's a story my grandmother used to tell us all. Makes us go to bed early. Really? Say if you stay up after dark or walk around the house too much, a Blair Witch would come and get you. All my life, really, I've believed in witches and ghosts and all that stuff. Do you believe that there are some in this area? Oh, definitely. Do you believe in witchcraft? No. No? No, sir. Are you a religious man? Yep. All righty. Pretty creepy stuff. Uh -huh. I, I believe there's something happening with her. And you think that it's possible that she's still up there now? I don't go up there. You don't go up there. Yeah, I believe enough not to go up there. <laughs> and they say that the, the woods are all haunted up there and stuff like that, but... What do they say? How are they well, haunted? Well, I don't... There really isn't many people that say that it's haunted, but there was this old old woman, Mary Brown. Who Mary used to, Brown. Yeah. Hmm. And she was kind of crazy, crazy lady. I, How was she seen by the community? Crazy. On the second day, they head out into the woods in North Burkittsville to look for evidence of the Blair Witch and they meet fishermen, and they agree to be interviewed on camera. They warn the students that the woods are haunted, and recall a story from 1888 in which a young girl named Robin Weaver went missing. And when she returned three days later, she talked about an old woman whose feet never touched the ground. And this harkens back to an interview that the students conducted in the kind of opening scenes with um, a local woman who's known as being a recluse and a bit strange. And she talks about seeing the Blair Witch and that she was stood in the woods and covered in hair. And I always find that bit really creepy. D did you find that bit creepy? Um, I didn't really find it creepy, to be honest. How about you, Mike? I think it's weird, that's for sure. I, I think it's just it adds another level of kind of oddity to the whole story, especially when we're hearing it from this, uh, from the kind of crazier lady who, yeah, yeah, I, I think it kind of, she did seem crazy. Oh, for sure. Just a little bit. And I think it lends itself to making her sound crazier. But again, when stuff starts going down, just imagining that thing kind of hunting down uh, our protagonist is really creepy. Uh, I think it's really cool. And I, I thought it was an interesting play on kind of the trope that you see in, like, other horror movies, like slasher movies, where you got the crazy guy at the beginning. Uh, like in uh, Friday the 13th, where you got the guy telling him, oh, you're going to die, about how there's all this crazy shit going on. I thought it was kind of an interesting play on that. I thought it was cool. Yes. And in a way, it does have elements, as opposed of the slasher. I mean, obviously, it's not gruesome too much, but the fact that they are hunted in the woods you know, it kind of turns that on its head. Definitely. Yeah, and then, so the students then hike to Coffin Rock, and this is one of the kind of inserts that we get of the actual film within the film. And Heather is the presenter, and she reads from a very old book that she's somehow managed to acquire, which um, kind of details, I think it's kind of diary entries from um, around the, the time of, I think, 1888. I think around that time when, you know, the, the witch was meant to exist. And she refers to a story in which five men were found uh, murdered and their bodies later disappeared. 
and she says that they were found with you know strange markings in their skin and they were all kind of tied together and it's a really creepy story um again like mike was saying just adding those layers bit by bit very subtle and i thought it built that atmosphere really well and they then camp and the next day um i believe that's the first time that josh mentions hearing something but the other two didn't and again like i say it's very slow in the way that it builds everything up but they carry on they're a little bit sure about where they're going they start to have issues with the map which is a huge thing eventually and they come across a cemetery with several i think i think they're called cairns um basically rock piles and they you know the kind of symbolism isn't really referred to but we obviously know that they mean something and they set up camp and Josh actually disturbs one of the the rock piles and Heather kind of puts it back quickly and that night they really start to hear sounds and they are scared obviously but they try and attribute it to animals and me what did you think at this point did you think it was kind of supernatural I, I like this kind of smaller stuff like I know people find it boring the whole idea of just you're in this tent you it's all just people freaking out over little sounds and stuff it's kind of like that paranormal activity principle uh where it's just this small shit going on and it's not really that scary but um well before i saw this i saw the it's another bigfoot movie i forget what it was called i think it was called willow creek and something similar like that happens in that and i just found both in there and in here i, I found it really creepy because like I said, it, it, there's such a genuineness to it that I buy into it. And when I watch found footage movies, when I watch almost all horror movies, but especially found footage, if it can be done correctly, I like to feel like I'm, I'm in the situation, like I'm in the character's shoes. And so that, to me, it just really creeped me out. I was kind of, when the characters were freaking out, I was with them in that. And so I thought it was really cool and a really creepy way to kind of start it out. But at the same time, not very bombastic. It was subtle. Yes, yes, and I really appreciate that, but it wasn't boring like some of the um, later, I think, found footage films tend to be. And, yeah, when you just kind of get, you know, those kind of tracking shots, shots of, you know, parts of rooms or, you know, the outdoors and nothing's happening for a long time. Hello? We were sleeping. Just keep it by the opening in the tent. Listen. Hello? Hello? It's all around us. That is fucking weird. Michael, are you saying you're not coming down? I ain't going down there. Why not? Because I'm not. I don't hear shit. Because you're fucking scared. Because I don't hear anything anymore. Because you're fucking scared. You could not deny hearing it. Get your ass out. What's the big deal? On the third day, they attempt to return to their vehicle, but they're really lost at this point, and have to camp again. And again, they hear more noises, and they're starting to um, kind of... They're a bit more intense, and I think you're hearing like a baby crying, really kind of strange things. And the next morning, they find that piles of, of stones have, have appeared around the tent. And 
Heather realises that her map is missing after they've been arguing quite a bit and everybody's kind of, the two guys are ganging up on Heather. She's very controlling. She, like I say, she has the map. They've tried to read it before when they were lost and nobody can make head or tails of it, but she says she knows the way. And Mike then reveals that he kicked it into the creek out of frustration the previous day. And I mean, were you annoyed by the characters at this point? I mean, I know, Lucard, I can hear the disdain in your voice already. <laughs> but like, especially when Mike really kind of loses his shit all of a sudden and just, you know, says, you know, I can't take any more. I laughing hysterically and not very believably i thought um you know he says that he, he kicked the mic into the creek and they all go mental you know how did you find the characters kind of up to this point i definitely was way past annoyed with them by this point and you know i i don't single out heather like a lot of people do uh it's interesting to me i i don't know why they single her out i i would say maybe she is the the most annoying of the three but they're all pretty annoying to me to be perfectly honest you know, I, I've heard uh, people say that a lot. This is one of the big criticisms is that in the movie is just watching these uh, people who you hate yell at each other in the woods. Yes. But for me personally, um, I didn't really feel one way. <clears throat> sorry, uh, one way or another for them. Uh, they to me were just normal people, and so um, when they were kind of being, I guess, douchier. I mean, they were douchier in in the way that I'm, everybody sometimes is just kind of an ass. Later on, when they really start yelling at each other and freaking out, and they all kind of take turns with that, and they try to calm each other down, through these ups and downs and these elevated emotions, I I, don't, I bought into it. I, I felt myself really getting into it. Uh, I, I, it's weird to explain why, and I know I understand why people don't uh, don't dig it, but I <clears throat> I really liked it. I I really liked the um, as opposed to just having a bunch of noises and jump scares. It adds a human element to it. And definitely yeah. that element of human error, for sure. I mean, I wanted to to believe in in these characters too. Like I, you know, I always go into any movie I watch wanting to believe in the characters. And I, I mean, I agree. Human beings by nature have ups and downs, and I feel like yeah, you're gonna have your bad days and your good days. But I don't know. To me, it was just like so. Like they were either performing on like, you know, level ten where they were really angry or. Uh, I don't know, just the, for me, it was a performance issue, I think, where they were overacting or, or underacting. Um, I don't know. Do you guys think this is valid or is this just me hating on the film? No, well, I mean, I mean, it's, it's valid. I mean, it's your opinion, but I, I don't agree. I, I, I bought into it, but I know what you mean. Yeah. And I can completely see that. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they were improvising, really. I know that the, the filmmakers, eventually had i think it was over 100 hours of footage to go through and edit down that's a lot of footage yeah, no I, was, about I, was thinking, that. I was thinking of you when i read that i mean <laughs> just doing the you know the podcast every week and you know we get maybe what like two to anywhere from two to four hours of audio and and you know just editing that can be uh it can take a long time so i can't imagine having that amount of footage i want to yeah. see that director's cut <laughs> can you imagine i think that's like the seventh circle of hell oh yeah <laughs> yeah on well, for, 30 Blu-ray discs. Yeah, for a Lucard, that definitely is. <laughs> it is, yes. yes no doubt. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I think they kind of chopped it up a little bit as well to kind of get that level of intensity and people losing it. So, you know, I think they kind of creatively worked to edit the film together so their 
all over the place, like we said. But again, I buy into the human element of being literally stuck in the woods, scared shitless. And, you know, you're going around in circles. I mean, they, at one point, they come back to a log that they crossed over and they've been heading in the same direction. So, you know, you can see why they're kind of, it's really kind of get, they've not been eating as well. You can see where, you know, it would really get to them. They're really, really hopelessly lost now and just heading, like I say, in the direction they've been going. And they discover at one point um, humanoid stick figures suspended from the trees. And I really, really like the design of these. I think it's very simple and very creepy. Yeah. And I think that was a huge part of the marketing campaign as well. Just, you know, the simplicity of it and how scary it is um, to kind of just kind of come across those and know that somebody has put them there or something. What? No way. They're all over the place. Holy shit. Come up here quick! I need to use the CP! Yo, there's all sorts of shit up here, man. This is fucking crazy shit. Please, I just, I gotta get this on 16. It's a fucking camera. What the fuck is this? I have no idea. Can we get out of here now? Yeah, please. Okay, I've got everything on video, man. Oh, Jesus Christ, I didn't even fucking see these, man. That's it, Heather. Heather, you got enough, man. Let's go. That's enough! Stop taping! Please stop taping! Okay. Okay, 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 we're leaving right now. Okay. Okay, we're out of here. We're out of here. I'm leaving. Come on, turn it off! Oh, well, you can't ah! in the creek either. Help! Please help us! Help us! This is not the way to get out of here. Fuck! Fuck! I think it's safe to say at this point that we're lost. I don't know what to do. And the next night the actual tent itself is shaken and they flee and hide in the woods until dawn and when they return to the tent they find that josh's possessions have been kind of strewn everywhere only his and his equipment is covered with a very strange kind of slime and i'm not quite sure what to read into that did you have any particular ideas about the slime yeah i thought that was a Really, it's and especially rewatching it, you you see that it's kind of a way to mark him because he's like the next one who gets taken. And uh, I thought that was just a really creepy kind of like, oh, dude, you you're fucked. And it just it's that you feel that fear of him uh, feeling that he he's next, and especially when you know that he is, it's just it, it's almost kind of sad and really freaky. It is, and then you know that night. Josh has been acting strangely all day because, like you say, he knows. You know, he makes a few comments and he kind of knows it's coming for him, which is it's very, very subtle, but it really gets under your skin. And the next morning, Heather is beside herself um, when she wakes to find Josh has disappeared. And it's for a you know, strange kind of turnaround. It's Mike comforting her. And they try to find him. Um, there's absolutely nothing. And that night they hear Josh screaming in the darkness. And I thought that scene in particular was quite effective to use his voice in that manner. Josh! 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 And the next morning, Heather finds 
outside the tent a bundle of sticks and fabric which is from uh, Josh's uh, shirt that he was wearing and inside it we don't really see uh, it's very kind of grainy as we've said um exactly but it looks to be teeth hair like um blood maybe maybe a tongue and she's just beside herself and she doesn't mention it to Mike because she knows that it will just kind of break him and there's a very kind of strong scene I think of she puts the camera down and it's like I think the only time she literally puts it down and leaves it running and goes and sits next to uh, Mike and they just kind of rock together and I found that to be one of the scary scenes again even though nothing happens but I guess is that just me? <laughs> I think it's that kind of just waiting for them to be next. Yeah. And you just kind of feel that it's very grim I think or they just, that's why I think the whole, like, last 20 minutes is just them waiting. Because they, they know, especially after um, Josh, after he gets taken, that's when they know. Uh, and especially when they start hearing the voices and stuff. And then, yeah, at that point, it's just the waiting game of waiting to just get killed. Uh, and Heather sees potentially really brutally. Yes. And then we have the final night and this like you see is when it all kicks off and they are basically running through the woods as they hear Josh um, crying for help and we have that kind of infamous scene of Heather crying um apologizing to everybody and talking about you know being in the woods cold and alone and hunted and again very subtle but I think it's an incredibly impactful scene but obviously it was completely ruined in a way by things like scary movie um as much as i love yeah. their take on it um that's what i think of every time <laughs> i see this scene <laughs> um but you know, did you have any particular thoughts on it like watching it back now i, I will say it's it's kind of a shame that she she puts so much into it and it you know it isn't taken seriously at all like i i definitely feel if i could say something positive you know this is her best performance in the film like she's certainly giving it everything she's got you know so in a way i feel a little bit bad for her you know she is kind of she's been mocked so much and made fun of for the scene but uh i don't know maybe that speaks to how effective it was for a lot of people as well yeah i, I completely agree with that i think although i know uh, you mentioned you know sherry O'Terry making fun of it in scary movie but still like even today uh, i watched it this earlier this morning and that scene to me is still, I mean, within the past year, year and a half, I've watched it a few times, and it's still really impactful. I think it's a really necessary moment. I think it's a very human moment because it's kind of that uh, element that takes her beyond. I know people will just say that her character is just a bitch, but to me, watching that scene, it's just like you really kind of feel bad where she's like, I, I know I fucked up. I know I, I, I am a big part of the reason we're all here and why we're all going to die, and I don't know, it's just kind of, there's a, a big level of sympathy there, I think, at least for me. Yeah, and I'd agree, and you can really see the kind of character arc, because she is a controlling, passionate woman who will, you know, do anything to get the project going, and, you know, some of the research, I read that, you know, she spent two years, allegedly, her character kind of researching this before they went out to film, which I can't really believe is if it's a college project, but, yeah. you know, 
yeah, but I mean, just in terms of kind of gendered readings, the you know the way she's presented and how she's punished for being such a kind of driven, passionate woman, which I don't necessarily agree with, but it's quite interesting to read some of, um, like I say, you know, the the readings around the film and the portrayals of the different characters. You do get that that complete kind of character arc there, and then we have later that night again we we hear josh crying again and mike just takes off and heather is running after him and like we said in terms of the farm and the style it's all completely believable in terms of the way it's filmed you know we've mentioned the end of the last broadcast (laughs) and how that wasn't great in terms of how it changed the way that the actual film was constructed formally um and stylistically but it's believable in the way that it's filmed and she's running, you know, the camera's going everywhere. You can't really see anything. And I'd be interested to compare the camera work in this, Mike, later on to Lake Mungo, because I know you made some points about the way that that film kind of focuses on blurry things quite a lot. Definitely. uh, Quite effectively, I think. But, um, yeah, a lot of people did not appreciate the camera work, but she runs after him. She is screaming for her life now. And it did remind me, you know, her screams at the end, you know they are terrifying and they reminded me a lot of sally hardesty's at the end of texas chainsaw massacre personally yeah um, I, i'd agree with that and they yeah i mean she's she certainly as i said she's giving it her all i don't feel like she's a particularly good actress but i think she is like really doing her best here trying to sell it you know yeah 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 completely and they happen upon a derelict abandoned house suddenly in the woods and there are runic symbols and as they kind of go down because josh's voice can be heard from what we take to be the basement there are children's handprints on the walls it's those kind of little details and he goes down she's following but we have the two cameras at this point and i suppose that's the only kind of unrealistic aspect of it and that you know you get in the the cuts between the two cameras but obviously somebody's meant to have put this footage together afterwards um anyway so mike's going downstairs and there seems to be a struggle but he just kind of goes silent and the camera's dropped then we cut to heather's camera um like i say she is hysterical at this point and as she goes down to the basement her camera just glimpses mike in the corner and he's actually facing the wall and then you just hear basically a thud um heather's camera drops and the footage ends and of course that's reminiscent of the the true crime story from the beginning um in which the children were meant to have been killed in that manner but what did you make of the ending i love the ending um i think that a lot of times in horror movies uh it gets to a point where yeah you just kind of kill everybody at the end um, and it's certainly done in found footage a lot. We're going to mention it later on for a couple movies, but for this film in particular, you know they're going to die at the end, and I think that they, the way they end it is much more effective than just, uh, okay, they're done, it's over. I think it's, it leaves you with a the, with the level of creepiness that each time it happens, each time I watch the movie and I see them in the house, it just, it, it just irks me. And what did you think the card at the end in? I was just kind of happy it was over, if I can be perfectly honest. <laughs> um, you know, I, I will say that I thought the uh, the fingerprints of the children on the house was really effective. Um, the way they died, to me, wasn't particularly scary. 
So I, I think now when I first saw the film, I believe my reaction was something like, is that it? Really? And, you know, and yeah, that was it. <laughs> so that then brings us into ratings. So I'd be interested to hear, Lucad, what you thought of this film, what you'd give it out of 10. Yeah, I, I guess I should go first since I am the uh, the grumpy old man here. And I kind of hate the fact that I don't like it because I, I know it's a film that you guys like a lot. And I know it's very meaningful to you. And I know it's very meaningful to a lot of people. But, you know, this is just my personal opinion on it. So, uh, so don't hate me, guys. <laughs> the plot could have been written by a middle schooler. It's, it's pretty bad, in my opinion. The acting, as we've talked about, is just overall pretty terrible I, I think the main actress definitely she puts the most into it but it's, it's still pretty bad um and it's you know it's a horror movie and for me just nothing was ever really scary we've also touched on the fact that the characters weren't really very likable you know and and for me that was a problem and we're going to talk about some found footage that i did find more effective but i think for many many years this this film really soured me on all found footage so i'm just now discovering a lot of these found footage movies because i was just like oh man i hated it so much in blair witch project um so you know as far as a a rating i i have to just i gotta give it a one out of ten i just thought it was abysmal, and it's you know for me personally it is the worst film i have ever seen wow what oh come on I mean, I'm, I'm just you being honest. you lived a good was... life, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will agree, I have lived a good life. And I've seen a lot of bad movies. But as far as, you know, as far as enjoyment, man, it, it just, it totally did not work for me on any level. So I'm very interested to hear you guys' ratings, because I know they're going to be very, very different from mine. Come on, Mike, save us. <laughs> well, I... I'm a big fan of this film, but I do get why other people don't like it. Um, as you mentioned before, it's got a simple plot, but it could be written by a middle schooler. But I, I don't. I, I think it's, it's, it's a very simple story that works here. I didn't think there needed to be a lot of like complexity to it. Plus, the actors, I don't. See, there isn't a whole lot of range in them. But I mean, this isn't Cloud Atlas. I mean, they, they fulfilled the roles, I thought, me personally. And I think that it's a very subtle movie in its creepiness. And I like that. And I think it's, uh, Becky, you mentioned it earlier, it is kind of a, a different take on almost a, a slasher movie. Uh, and I think that's really cool. And I think that it something, as again, I mentioned earlier, I love being sucked into a found footage movie. I love that feeling that it's a very genuine uh, something I know that it's I know it's fake, but I still believe it's real every time I watch it. And on that merit of me just especially in the past year and a half, I've watched it a number of times and I just love it each time. And it surprises me. I gotta give it a nine out of ten. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I'm gonna have to be at a nine. Um I enjoy the film. I try to kind of give a bit of time between watching it. Um I don't know why, maybe because of the hype around it and everything. I enjoyed it when it came out. I found it incredibly effective. And I, I think it's very subjective in terms of what you find scary and what, um, you know, like I say, those far more stylistic elements. If you can, you know, like Mike says, if you can still be immersed in it and, you know, take it 
on as being kind of real which some people can't and for me that kind of amateur aesthetic really works and, and that doesn't bother me the shaky camera work and all that whereas I can totally see why it would um but you don't see anything in this film you really don't and that works for me because the way I am with my imagination if I don't see something I or you know you just see something that's hinted at or um and this is why I think Lake Mungo is very effective in this kind of slow burn supernatural way as well that's what terrifies me and I like I say I think it has to be at nine not only because of my memories of watching it first time um and I do appreciate it on on a rewatch as well but just for what it's done for the horror genre for better or worse it's you know it is a game changer and it really like Luke had said has had an impact not only in film I think but the impact across different mediums is is really substantial and I really kind of commend the creativity of of the filmmakers to do something so innovative at that time and to use the internet you know to completely manipulate the audience like we said in this particular medium and nothing really has touched it since Arcan, I believe so I would be at nine I can't believe how <laughs> how different very different scores <laughs> totally well, on the opposite it, ends of the spectrum here. It, yeah it's it's interesting so uh, it'll be interesting as well to hear how we feel about some of these other films, I think. Yeah, I think maybe we might be a little bit closer on the rest. But, I think um, so, too. Yeah. A little bit. I think so. I think we will be. Definitely. But um, before we get into those, the podcasting machine, that is Mark from The Good, The Bad and The Odd podcast, has sent in his thoughts on The Blair Witch Project. So, firstly, over to Mark. everyone at United Nations of Horror, Mark here. Uh, I thought I'd send in a little feedback, given your uh, topic this week, film footage, I thought I'd send in a little feedback about Blair Witch Project. It's not a film I've seen in a long time. I have watched it recently though, just just to be able to call in and commentate on it, uh, or comment on it. it uh, I saw it when it was first out on home video, which I'm not sure, 90s. Um, and ironically, uh, when I rented it, the disc that I rented had a problem with it. So when I put it in, it kind of kept skipping, but because of the nature of the film, I wasn't quite sure if that's how it was meant to be. Uh, and I couldn't quite work it out. And I took it and re-examined -exam it and re-examined it. And I did see a little hairline crack around the, uh, the inner part of the uh, DVD anyway I persisted uh, but basically I I didn't what I didn't realise is I hadn't seen some of the footage I thought I had but I hadn't seen some of the early footage uh, uh, and I persisted and, and watched it and, and kind of enjoyed it uh, but the ending was a little confusing to me uh, or a little uh, is that it uh, and it wasn't until I saw it, uh, saw it a bit later when I, I actually realised I'd missed the section at the beginning. There's a section where uh, someone's talking about um, the witch making the children stand, one child stand with their face to the wall while, while she killed the other. That uh, the end made sense to me uh, at that point. Uh, so I kind of was confused first time I saw it because there was a, 
a bit that wasn't entirely clear that on the rewatch sorted itself out. Uh, funny little aside. Um, I've always kind of held Blair Witch fairly high. I always thought it was pretty tense and scary. Um, but on this rewatch, I mean, it's been at least 10 years since I last watched it. Uh, but on this rewatch, I, 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 all I could see were the flaws, really. Um, what I did like was at the beginning, many of the characters that he interacted with uh, were really good performances, actually. I, I like the one with the little kid and some of the old guys. That felt very, very natural. It was only when they interacted with some of the younger actors that uh, it felt a bit, yeah, it felt staged. It, it did feel like acting. And in terms of the main cast, I think they went, you know, mostly they were decent. There was a few times you really felt you were watching drama school uh, project going on. Uh, there was one scene where the guy is actually explaining uh, the motivation uh, to this woman who's like obsessed with doing this documentary that I felt was a bit it didn't work for me it didn't work for me See, it felt a bit too uh, meta actually um, and I felt the film really kind of took a dip at about the 40 minute mark when it was just them endlessly getting more and more strung out um, and it, to me it just felt like a drag I was watching people moaning about sort of what was going on and sort of getting hysterical and uh, it's hard to see how they could have got around that. It, if you'd have cut a lot of that, it, it, it wouldn't have led on to the end of the film properly. However, having to suffer it was quite a kind of tiresome exercise, I thought. Uh, but then it, I, I thought it, it definitely picked up once one of the mains sort of disappeared and there was only the two of them left. That I think the film was fine from that point on uh, until the end. So, uh, for me, I mean, when I first watched it, and for a number of years, I would have held it as like a, maybe an 8 or out of 10, maybe even a little higher, but on this rewatch, uh, I think the best I can give it is uh, a 6 out of 10. I would acknowledge, of course, it's a groundbreaking film. It's an important film in sort of film history. Uh, and the, uh, if for nothing else, the, the brilliant marketing that, that sort of went surrounded it, um, uh, and made it more impactful for sure, but as a as standalone as it is now, not so good. I think uh, if you want an example of a film that's very very similar but does it a little better, the more recent Willow Creek, uh, uh, I think handles it a little better. The the dynamic it, it just works better for me. Um, but uh, I think Blair Witch is. It, if you just observe it as a film in and of its own right, it's not it's not great. Uh, in terms of found footage, though, um, I think there's been some great found footage. It's quite an interesting little subgenre. It's not one I particularly resent. Um, I'm not a fan of the shaky cam, it has to be said, but I kind of like the concept. Some recent, a recent one I really, really enjoyed was uh, Troll Hunter. It's not that recent, but uh, I think that's possibly my favourite pure found footage kind of movie. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And in terms of horror, I think, I think the best one I've seen. I know there's lots that I haven't seen, but the best one I've seen of pure found footage is probably the first paranormal activity i thought that was really good it really worked for me 
Um, I say that's the best. I haven't said that. Uh, I watched when I started watching Paranormal Activity two. I had to shut off halfway through because I found the tension too unbearable. That there was something about it that worked really effective, even though it was like glacially slow. The tension just really got to me, and I had to shut it off halfway through. And I never, I've never been back to watch it again. Um, so that I think is a sign that it's a pretty damn well constructed horror film. But I can't say out and out is it's better than first because i haven't watched it all the way through um uh, but there, there's been some great ones uh, as i say i'm sure you'll you'll be discussing some of this um but uh for entertainment value i really do like troll hunt uh, and for horror i i think paranormal activities are a really solid film blair witch has definitely got its place in the genre history uh though i do think uh, slightly earlier ones you know even ghost watch so a better than uh blair witch okay that's enough for me uh, i can't even remember if i said my name <laughs> i'm sure i did uh so signing off here mark bye guys <laughs>
her cameraman and a group of firemen who are trapped in a quarantined apartment block amidst an infection that's turning the residents into zombies. And the film itself was inspired by um, the idiom of live television and horror video games, interestingly. Mm. Yes. I wonder, do they say what video games specifically or just... Just, I guess, in general. Like Resident Evil and stuff? Yeah, I just said some things like maybe Doom. Just kind of the that first person kind of shooting, the way that they travel around the building, I would say personally. And um, this is because the directors wanted to give the audience um, a credible interactive experience that would make them feel like they were participating, as it were, as opposed to merely observing. And again, this uh, brings us back to Mike's point about, you know, really immersing you in the film. And I think that's a really clever way of doing it because they are... Um, basically locked in in this building and you know they just have to make their way around it and it does really feel like um an interactive video game and the directors interestingly cite the Blair Witch Project, Cannibal Holocaust, Man Bites Dog and the television show Cops um, as well as live television news reports as key influences and uh, I do know that the um the female lead actress uh, Manuela Velasco um, she worked as a reporter in Spain so really wow yeah so that uh, again kind of feeds into the realism because um, at least in you know a domestic context in terms of the audience they would um, no doubt at least some audience members would already you know associate her with realism so that's yeah a, you know a very clever move I think um, you know I, I know Spanish is very different of course, even in America compared to Mexico, but then you have, uh, you know, Spain's version of Spanish, it's even more different. So, and I don't speak a ton of Spanish, but just hearing Spanish reports on, you know, stations like Telemundo and everything throughout the years, I thought, oh, it sounds like really authentic. But my high school Spanish is pretty much gone at this point. According to um, Balaguerro um, in an interview with Time Out magazine, the film is a statement on how television and mass media can become reality generators. We believe reality doesn't exist anymore. The only thing that is real is what's on the television. And it is communication media that decides what happens in the world, what should worry us and for how long, what should interest us, what is good and what is bad, it can also be interpreted as a reflection on the moral and ethical boundaries of television and how far we should go uh, with the camera. How much can we and should we really show on camera? And I thought personally that quote was really interesting, um, relating back to our discussion of the BBC television special Ghost Watch from 1992, um, which we discussed in the first episode of this uh, series on found footage. Uh, film in which the creator Stephen Volk made a similar comment about revealing the extent of the public's reliance on traditional channels uh, to access media content and the veracity of this content and in manipulating the audience in the way that the program did which of course as we discussed was very controversial and audiences felt that they were you know they were basically kind of duped that he exposed um, this kind of false trust and really did generate questions and discussions surrounding realism and what we should believe. Um, and I thought that it was interesting that Wreck is an example of a European film with a mainstream theatrical release that does the same thing. And I just thought, you know, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on the different kind of mediums. You know, that Wreck had an international release and was a film in the cinema that people 
you know, believed to be fictional, um, as opposed to Ghostwatch, which deliberately manipulated audiences as a real television program and how they're both kind of raising the same question. It is interesting. I mean, you know, you mentioned cops and, and that's pretty much it's reality TV before there was reality TV. Um, do you guys have cops in the UK? Um, we have similar shows that kind of just follow uh, police officers around. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, some people would probably say, hey, we shouldn't even show that. But it's it's an interesting question. You know, how much do we show? Like, eventually, you know, do we want to show people getting executed? Uh, Starship Troopers has like a, an advertisement saying like, oh, execution of this person. Do we really want to see that? Are we that thirsty for blood? I, I guess is the ultimate question. Uh, I, I feel like certain things shouldn't be shown. Certain things should be kept private, but you have to be careful, I feel like, because you also don't want to censor creativity. You know, in, in my view, cinema is art and horror movies are art. And horror movies in particular, you know, a lot of times they show the worst of humanity, a lot of gruesome stuff. So it's really, I feel like it's a fine line. I think the whole aspect of... Um... Uh, making a film with the undertone of oh people love to see uh they're, they're so thirsty for blood and and violence uh, how far will they go i think that has been so beaten into the ground as far as uh being shown in films certainly a lot of sci-fi films especially and horror films a lot of stuff about kind of dystopian futures um and it just gets kind of tired after a while but i think a, sometimes a film like wreck can do it in a way that's very subtle. Like, uh, uh, the whole idea of, especially, it's going to be brought up in all of these films, the whole idea of oh, why are they, why do they still have the camera? Why, why is the cameraman walking around like that? Uh, they all give their vague reasons, but you kind of buy into it. But I like the idea of here, if you look at it in, in the way of, yeah, because people want to see uh, plenty of violence and blood on TV. That's why they're still recording it, kind of. They don't beat that over your head or anything. That's just something that you can pick up. And I think that's kind of interesting and a unique kind of way to look at it. It's interesting, too, to think about it from a, a news standpoint. You know, do you guys think that the news shows too much violence? Like, I, I mean, should they limit what they show? Um, I don't think so. I mean, and in, in, you get stuff like... Uh, Nightcrawler that kind of shows how how dark those kind of people can go, but I, I feel like the news is supposed to show the world good and bad, and so I I don't they certainly cross the line sometimes, but I don't think it's a big issue. Uh, what do you think, Becky? Well, at the end of the day, truth is truth, and I think that needs to come through. And you know, it's not nice. You know, there's a lot of things going on in certain parts of the world that aren't nice, but we need to be aware of it. And you know, there are kind of atrocities happening in other countries that just aren't kind of publicized at all. So the, yes. the news is already extremely kind of selective as it is. So it's a very, I have a difficult time with all of it anyway, because there is always going to be selection and censorship. And as we've seen with things like Nightcrawler, you know, it's, it's a business at the end of the day. But I don't know. In terms of these films, I just find it very interesting how the news is kind of in in this film in particular is is so kind of you know at the, at the core of the film you know at one point when everything's going on 
the lead character says, no, we have to keep filming, we have to show what happens. And that's something that very much resonates in, at least out of all the films, uh, The Blair Witch Project and Cloverfield, I think, in that, you know, no matter what happens here, we need to have a record of the truth. Definitely. And I, th- I think that's why I bought Pablo holding on to the camera so much. There are so many reporters who want to get that story and capture that footage. So I, I think it was really well done in that respect. I felt like it was accurate and truthful. Yeah, and believable. And at the end of the day, he's a cameraman. That's, if not his profession, then that is his, you know, it's his passion. And basically, shit's going down. That is, he's holding on to something as well. I think you know, it's it's quite a nice. In terms of characterization, it's quite a nice um, nuance to his his character. The actors, um, again, to heighten that level of realism, um, were never actually given the full scripts, as the directors didn't want them to know their characters' fates in advance. And this meant that the actors were apparently um, quite stressed or nervous or apprehensive on the day of filming, um, which very much kind of translated into their performances. And the directors... I found this very interesting. Um, originally threw around the idea of featuring policemen in the film, um, but then opted for firemen, given that they're more likable and perceived as heroic, especially after 9-11. Hmm. Well, given how people view the police nowadays, uh, you know, I think that was probably a good call because uh, even now over here in the States, you know, you have police just doing a lot of stuff that they shouldn't do. And, you know, and it's good that they're showing that kind of stuff on the news. You know, I know, I know I'm going back a little bit there, but uh, yeah, I think it was a good decision. Yes, I think so too. And it makes it quite an interesting film in the way that they, in terms of the plot, that they follow uh, the firemen into this building and, and how that develops. So reporter Angela and her cameraman Pablo are covering the night shift in one of Barcelona's local fire stations for their documentary television series, While You Were Sleeping, um, which basically just covers different occupations at night. And while they're recording, the firehouse suddenly receives a call um, about an old woman who is trapped in her apartment, and um, obviously something's happening. So they accompany two of the firefighters, Alex and Manu, to the apartment building, where two police officers are already waiting and she's trapped in her apartment and they approach her and they have to break the door down yeah, yeah they do and she's actually talking like you know in the background like kind of giving a summary and then i remember the door breaks open and she like kind of screams yeah she gets kind of scared which is kind of ironic considering what's to come Voy. Estamos eh, frente a la puerta de la casa en la cual parece ser que una vecina mayor eh, ha tenido algún problema. Los vecinos han oído gritos. Mari Carmen, que es la mujer que ha llamado a los bomberos de la policía, dice... No pasa nada. Oh, ¡Qué susto! Señora, ¿le habla la policía? So as they actually um, enter the apartment by force, the woman becomes aggressive and attacks one of the officers biting his neck. I mean, did you kind of see that bit coming? I mean, did you go into the film um, originally with any knowledge of it beforehand? I actually knew nothing about this. So really? when the, I had no clue. And, uh, you know, I, I thought the, the beginning was uh, pretty interesting, like just interviewing these firemen and then they go to this call. And I figured something was going to happen there. But then 
I mean, it was really brutal the way the the old woman bit the the guy's neck, and I mean, just blood gushing everywhere. And even with the camera being a, a bit shaky, I mean, the the level of violence and everything really came through there. And you know, you knew this guy was in serious serious trouble and uh, seriously injured. I want to say when I saw this, I had already seen Quarantine the remake. I, I think I did. I can't remember. But, I mean, I certainly had known about this. Uh, I rented it from a red box, so it was much after its initial screenings, and it was definitely notorious at the time. But I, I love that when a film gets super hyped up for me, like something like this or like The Blair Witch, and I can still watch it and I buy into it, and it's still I don't have any kind of reservations for it. Uh, I still sit down and enjoy it like I would any other kind of film. And I think it still works. It, it deserves the hype it gets. Yeah, I mean, my friend went to watch it at the cinema, I remember, when I was in university when it came out. And she was saying, you've got to watch this film. It's called Wreck. Cause I'm, I'm looking everywhere for a film called Wreck, as in, like, Shipwreck. <laughs> and, like, oh, just no. had no idea. And I was like, what do you think it's record? She's like, Wreck. Like, oh. But um, so I heard, like, quite a bit of hype um, about it myself, um, but went into it initially not really um knowing what it was about and I was blown away and I think it's really really it's one of the better I think zombie movies but um yeah I would agree yeah and the level of gore I think like you said about you know the the kind of face munching scene I think the gore in this in this film is particularly effective less so towards the end but it's very limited in its use of CGI compared to other um kind of contemporary films Something about it just uh, feels very authentic compared to other zombie films that I've seen. And in fact, one of my notes that I had, you know, I, I said something like it's it's the most um, interesting zombie film that I've seen in years. And, you know, I, I would stand by that even now. Yeah. And I love that it's not just zombies. Like, I love their little twist on it at the end. I think it's something really unique. Yes, Definitely. Yes, and we will get to that. So as the team kind of carry the injured officer downstairs, they find the rest of the building's residents gathered in the lobby. And the police and the military um, have kind of sealed off the building, you know, combining their, um, you know, the two and trapped them inside. And people really start to panic. And Alex, who remained upstairs with the old woman, is then thrown over the staircase railings, which is quite surprising, and seriously injured. And That caught me totally off guard. Did it catch you guys yes. off guard? Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I think my response was, holy shit. I mean, I just, I could not believe it. That That is one of the most brutal things I have ever seen. That's it. And it's just completely unexpected. And it's kind of sets up, you know, you have no idea what is going to happen here. And I think that really adds to the kind of, you know, the anticipation that the film generates. Um, but on top of this, the old woman from upstairs then kills a girl and the remaining officer is forced to shoot her when she tries to um, basically attack everybody else. And Angela and Pablo begin to interview the residents, including um, a girl who is sick named Jennifer and her mother, Mary, says she's got tonsillitis. And the dog, Max, is at the vet as well because he's sick. And the injured are then put in the building's textile warehouse. And a health inspector in a hazmat suit arrives and attempts to treat them. But the injured suddenly become aggressive and start attacking other people. And this is when it kind of ramps up a gear. 
and the residents attempt to flee and um the intern um Gilliam, is that how you pronounce it um you know i think so I was like <laughs> Gilliam, right or maybe yeah. i don't, i'm not spanish so i don't i got no <laughs> idea well, he's locked in the warehouse and the health inspector then provides some context and explains that they're affected with a virus that is similar to rabies and the time in which the disease takes effect varies by blood type, which I thought was a very interesting kind of uh, scientific element to the story. Did, did you kind of appreciate that? Yeah, it, it's cool, but I, it wasn't anything like super unique. I thought. I mean, we we've seen stuff like that, in like twenty eight days later. But it's it's definitely so cool. I liked it. I did think of twenty eight days later. That's a good one to mention, Mike. Yeah. No, I just I just like that little kind of additional detail, if that makes sense. And he then reveals that the disease um, can be traced back to a dog in the depart in the apartment building, and that's when Angela realizes that it's Max. And when the residents confront um, Mary, Jennifer, the little girl, turns, bites her mother's face and runs upstairs. I mean, did you find that bit shocking? Oh, uh, yeah. She was the cutest little zombie I've ever seen. <laughs> it, I, I will agree with that, man. It was uh, like I knew she was going to turn eventually, but it was still really brutal and effective the way that they did it. Yes. Yes. I'd, I mean... So it's case I think with kids in horror, um, especially zombie kids. But yeah, there aren't many zombie kids no, in movies. There really aren't, <laughs> or in video games either. You know, I, the only time I can think of, I guess they'd be considered zombies, is maybe in Silent Hill, the video game. Um, I yeah. can't remember if they were in the movie or not. But yeah. but yeah, that's the only thing I can think of. I'm thinking of The Walking Dead, the first episode, that kind of opening scene where he shoots little girl. Oh yes, that's true. Dawn of the that's Dead quite... too. Yes, the open. Yeah, again. Yeah. Yep. So there are some. Yeah, and I think they're used very much to kind of shock and set up that level of this is where we're going. It's definitely effective too. Yeah, Sergio then handcuffs Mary to the stairs, which never goes well, as we know, and proceeds upstairs with Mano and Pablo, and they find Jennifer, but she bites Sergio, um, and tells who then tells everyone else to leave him. Um, Manu and Pablo find the remaining residents running upstairs as the infected in the warehouse have now broken down the door and leaving the handcuffed Mary behind, as we say he doesn't go well, they enter an empty apartment along with Angela, a resident called uh, Cesar Cesar and the health inspector who has been bitten and Cesar mentions there may be um, another way out through the basement where there is a large drain that is connected to the sewers, but says that the keys are in the interns, Gilliam's, um apartment. And the health inspector, um, who was infected, then bites his heart, forcing Angela, Manu and Pablo to escape and fight their way up um, to um, Gilliam's apartment on the fifth floor. And what did you make of this scene where they have to just kind of go for it? I think, personally, this kind of happens back to the video game element. Absolutely. I, I strongly agree with that because what I like about Wreck is that it's a movie that really just takes place in this one building, which could get boring, but um, I know earlier we mentioned video games, and it reminded me of something like the first Resident Evil or Silent Hill 2, where you kind of go around this area so much so that you really start to get a feel of it. I, I thought there was a lot of, I got a feeling and there was a sense of familiarity 
with uh, a lot of the definitely the first half of the movie going around the building. I got very familiar with it. So at this point, when they are running around and it just becomes a big, just chaotic uh, film, uh, there was still that familiarity. So it wasn't just running into random rooms and corridors. I got tense because I knew what this door was and what was up this staircase. And I thought that added a really cool element and a really necessary dimension to it. I agree. The fact that, like you said, this is um, a contained space and you're very much kind of aware of, of that space and they're not just running into corridors and into rooms that could be anywhere or whatever. I think that really, really helps and adds to the claustrophobia and, and the the kind of dread of what's coming. And having found the key at this point, Angela and Pablo then leave the apartment and find Manu among the infected. They're chased upstairs Um and take refuge in the penthouse. And it's here that they discover a tape recorder, which explains the virus, basically how it originated. And the penthouse was where an agent of the Vatican was residing, and he was researching and isolating an enzyme believed to be the biological cause of demonic possession. And Now this was cool. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that, like, for sure. Because I did not see this coming at all. No. I personally loved that element. Like I say, that bit of scientific detail at the beginning, I think was very much kind of prelude to how, you know, where they were going with this. And I just love that kind of scientific and religious take on um, this. And yeah, just not something I've, I'd ever really heard of before. Have you? Well, it, it reminded me of the uh, movie we've talked about in here before, uh, Demons, in the sense that they are more these kind of, demonic entities possessing the dead bodies where they're still zombies but they're not really the typical zombies and i think adding that kind of supernatural element to it is really cool i i mean i didn't think it was like a ripoff of demons or anything but it definitely reminded me of that very much yeah those are really the only two films i can think of um of course demons 2 but demons 1 is a lot better yeah, than demons, demons 2, 2 in my opinion yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, and it's funny because I was just thinking, like, the other day, like, man, I wish there were more, like, demonic zombie films. I know it's a weird thing to just think out of the blue, but this is how my mind works. Because, uh, you know, really the only kind of films with zombies in the supernatural we get are, like, Haitian voodoo zombies and things like that. So I just thought this was such a cool twist, and I really... Uh, I got excited about this. I just thought the idea that demonic possession could be biological, that, that was really, really interesting in terms of the, the religious elements of it. Whereas in something like 28 Days Later, even though it's biologically the disease, whatever it is, is kind of transferred from person to person, there's no kind of religious connotations with it, um, unless it's something you read into it. But the fact that this was extremely religious and yet was a biological manifestation, I thought that was really, really interesting. But the um, agent of the Vatican, the um, like I said, the penthouse belonged to him. They find out from bits and bobs around the apartment that he located a possessed girl named Tristana and he kidnapped her and brought her to the penthouse for research. And during this time, the enzyme mutated and became viral. And the agent, having no other options, sealed her in the house, presumably to let her die of starvation. And at this point, Pablo... I don't know why you'd want to do that, but he reaches up with his camera to record around inside the attic 
and um yeah <laughs> he did not read the uh, zombie handbook apparently. he did not and an infected child appears and swipes at the camera to break the, the light yeah that oh got me God. had a heart attack yeah it got me too and that's really interesting because we get that kind of visceral jump scare and they're then in complete darkness um pablo turns on the night vision and discovers a sealed door and that's when we have tristana emerge who is now a blind and emaciated figure and she seems to be searching for something around the penthouse let's say food um and they're trying not to make her aware of their presence and when this kind of person creature appeared i mean completely opposite to the visceral scare just before of, of the child like the hairs on the back of my next and my my feet curled in oh, <laughs> it really 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 her. creeped me out do you, did you find that oh without a doubt it was incredibly creepy i think it's just such a such a great way to end because the whole second half is just intense 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 and it's not like it just okay we, we're done it leads up to it ends on such a terrifying note i mean i i had seen the movie years ago and i had seen quarantine but watching this again recently still just freaks me out it's just nightmare inducing has to be one of the scariest zombies i've ever seen definitely yeah yeah it really is and i i'm not sure but i believe it might be a man who played that part i think you're right yeah yeah and um just the way the figure moves like it just completely gets to me every time and um Pablo is unfortunately killed by Tristana dropping the camera. Angela then picks it up to look through the screen. Um, she sees Tristana eating Pablo, uh, panics, trips, drops the camera, which then continues to record as she's dragged into the darkness screaming. And I just thought that ending was fantastic. It is absolutely terrifying. I mean, wow. Because not many zombie films scare me at this point. I've seen so many, but... Oh man, this this part and just this film in general really got me. Yeah, it definitely. It just the whole, as I said before, just that whole second half is just terrifying because the first half is it moves at a good pace, but it's a lot of building up characters and building up the the area and mythologies and stuff. And then the second half, it's just okay, shit's hitting the fan. It's just chaos. Everything, uh, everything goes wrong that can go wrong. And you're just on the edge of your seat because at this point you care about the characters. That's what I really appreciate about it. And so just this whole second half is just horrific to me. Yeah, they did a really good job building up all the tenants in the apartment. And, you know, not just the reporter and Pablo. And and in a sense, I feel like we sort of almost become Pablo. You know, it's I don't know. It's just so masterfully done. Yeah, no, I'd completely agree. And um on that note would you like to rate it um mike do you want to go first this time sure um yeah as i said before i really appreciate the uh watching this it was infamous to me i obviously i knew it was fake there was no i think after blair watch there was no sense that you watch a a found footage movie and think it's real but like blair witch i i got a sense of these characters in this world and i really bought into it as if it was real. I think the actress who plays uh, Angela Vidal, I think she's great. I think she's really got... In fact, I think all the actors are great. And they add another 
that really adds a layer to it to where when things happen to people, it's not just zombie eating uh, character number three. It's like the, you're actually watching these people, fully fleshed out characters die. And that adds such another level of tension to it. And I think it moves really fast. And this is a short movie. It's like what, 75 minutes. It's like the bare minimum amount to be considered a feature length film. And it just does so much with that time limit. And it, it gets in and gets out fast and just leaves you with your hair standing up on the back of your neck. Uh, g- gave me goosebumps. Uh, I mean, I watched this. I was, it was very late at night, and it was just hard for me to go to sleep because it just let me, left me just chilled to the bone. Uh, I'm going to give this a – got to give this a 10 out of 10. I absolutely adore this film. I think it's one of the uh, prime examples of brilliant found footage – exactly what I love of the fo- the found footage genre, and it's one of the best horror films ever made. Wow. That is very high praise indeed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think I would be at a nine, personally, and for all the same points that um, you mentioned, I think the script is top-notch and the characterization comes through with that, but in terms of the found footage, um, like we said, the way that it relies on... Um, you know, news reporting that idea of a cameraman filming that they're wanting to get a story, but you know, the camera is basically is part of him, and the audience is kind of taken in through that doorway into the film, and I think that works perfectly. And also, that element of this being constructed in one location that is contained, and we know that location, like Mike was saying. And that sense of, you know, an interactive kind of video game, like a horror video game, I think that really, really works well in terms of the realism. And, you know, clever little nuances, like we were saying how the lead actress was known in um, Spain for, you know, actually presenting. So I think it's just really clever on all levels. It is really, really scary. And um, for me personally, anyway, and the story I I really enjoyed how again it kind of touches on science and religion but it doesn't go into too much detail it leaves enough open um I think while providing enough detail to kind of get that kind of perfect mix so I would be at a nine as well man it's hard for me to add anything else to what you guys have said I I have all these notes here but um you pretty much covered all the great points I will say one thing I really liked about Rick were these incredibly long shots where there was just so much action going on. I cannot even begin to imagine how many takes it took to get some of this stuff right. And believe me, this film does it right. This is probably the most scared I've been by a zombie film in years. I, I think I already mentioned that, but I mean, it's, it's worth mentioning again. It's, it's, it's just really, uh, it's really freaky. I actually found the fact that Pablo is holding onto the camera to be believable, which is not true for a lot of found footage films for me. You know, it's it's usually really hard for me to suspend my belief when it comes to this. But I think with the the elements of uh, of him being a cameraman and her being a reporter, it was totally believable to me. It's an awesome movie. That's that's all I can say. So. I'm also at a, a 10 out of 10 for this. It's uh, it's a perfect movie for me, and this is one I will be getting on Blu-ray. Totally into different ends of the spectrum. I was going to say, <laughs> you've really jumped across that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we all seem to be relatively 
on point there, I Definitely. think. And um, let's see if we can keep that going. Moving <laughs> on to the next one um, in the list. That is the Poughkeepsie Tapes from 2007. Today, police made a shocking discovery in Poughkeepsie. A third body was found here today. A Poughkeepsie couple vanished over the weekend, seemingly without a trace. Do you mind if I film this? I'm making a little movie about my trip. This is an American horror film directed by John Eric Dowdell. And I wasn't aware of this, um, but despite being completed in 2007, um, the film was only released to the general public in 2014. I don't think it even has a... Is there a DVD release of it? I don't believe so, because I've only seen clips before um, watching it for for this show, because I, I really struggled to find it. Oh, see, I have my sources, I so I didn't struggle, but I had to go from <laughs> deeper places. Yeah. I know I know a guy who knows a guy. Yes, yeah. I, I knew a guy, too. And uh, he hooked me up with this really disturbing movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. There, there are scars left on my brain from this movie, so I'm excited to talk about this. Yeah, movie. so we've all watched it, I think, for this podcast, haven't we? Yes. Yep. Been meaning to watch it for a while, though. <laughs> and... What I'd be interested to find out, just your kind of general, I mean, did you know much about it kind of going in? I I knew nothing. Um, I, I knew because I remember seeing a trailer for this back in 2000 and I guess it was 2007, 2008 when I saw the mist in theaters. And I remember seeing the trailer for it and just and I, I was 11 or 12 at the time. So it just freaked the fuck out of me. Like, I was like, what is that? So. I had this knowledge of it, and it was always this thing that I always wanted to watch, but I knew it was hard to find. And so it was great to have an excuse to find it on this show, but I didn't quite know big details. I knew the basic concept of it, but I didn't know a lot of exactly what happens, and much to my surprise. And now you'll never sleep again. <laughs> exactly. I wish it was still a mystery to me. Yeah, all I've seen all week is poor Mike posting on Facebook that he can't sleep. <laughs> He's really disturbed from watching all of these films. Yeah. I watched this back to back with Wreck, and I was like, "Well, I'm never going to sleep Ooh. again." <laughs> Man. So, well, yeah, that's that's the uh, way to stay up for long periods of time. Oh yeah, test taking. I think right? every movie I watched this week, all five of the movies we're going to talk about, scared the shit out of me, just to some degree. Yeah, I remember seeing your post about Lake Mongo. Oh, Jesus and I was Christ. Like, oh, man. <laughs> when we talk about that, so, oh, my God. That movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I got to ask, Mike, before we move on, which scares you worse? 
you know what? I gotta say, it probably like Mungo. I I would say because this because what I like about Poughkeepsie tapes is that I mean it's horrific to watch, but Lake Mungo is the one. I'm gonna get into more details about it later, but that's the one that kept me. I kept turning around and looking behind me, and I had to have the lights on. Oh, bless you, man. See, that's it's interesting to me because that was the opposite for me. Like the Poughkeepsie tapes, more frightening to me. Uh, so Becky, how about you? Which which was more frightening? Um. I think because I watch so much true crime stuff anyway, as disturbing as I find it, I must admit, um, a particular scene in Lake Mungo really got me. So, yes, jumping in then to um, the Poughkeepsie tapes um, in terms of the plot. When police raid a house um, in New York, they discover over 800 videotapes shot by a serial killer, uh, which presents a visual record of his murders in quite graphic detail and state and federal law enforcement teams then um, obviously sift through the images looking for clues as to his identity and the identity of his victims but the killer is of course playing games and you know it kind of made me think straight away he wanted these tapes to be found so there was going to be um more to to the story than you know them literally just kind of looking um through and Repeated viewings of the materials reveal little um, beyond the, the crimes themselves. And as the authorities come through um, the tapes, they find they have quite a an effect on them. And I thought that the film very cleverly uh, charts the training of FBI behavioural analysts in this kind of documentary film that is being made. Um, and in doing so, it presents the developmental stages of the serial killer's psyche as he progresses his work. Um, and I really love that formal construction. And this is yet another example of how found footage is being used in a completely different way to the kind of two previous films that we that we watched. So, I mean, did did you agree with that? Did you kind of notice the the kind of formal construction? You know, did you appreciate it in terms of the found footage and that effect? Yeah, I love that because it was such a different kind of... It almost reminded me a bit of um, Ghost Watch to a degree uh, as far as a lot of the uh, actual like interviews and stuff. And I, I found... I like the idea of making it like a true crime thing. And I think the writing is really good in that sense where I, I was really interested in the mystery as if it was I was watching an actual thing, like an actual crime. Uh, like the other films we've mentioned and like the ones I'm going to talk about, I bought into it. I, I knew it was fake, but I, out of all of the uh, movies we're going to talk about, this probably was the one that felt m the most real to me. And so I really found myself into the mystery as much as I was into the, the killer's point of view type of stuff. Some of the most terrifying television shows to me are those true crime shows, you know, and they involve these documentary style reports along with footage of the victim and i mean those are just more haunting to me than any horror movie ever can be uh and so i think that's one of the reasons that um this disturbed me so much and one of the reasons i appreciated it so much as well see that's the thing like you know it's created as a, a documentary true crime documentary and i do watch that quite a lot 
um, personally on you know, television or actual documentary films um, about true crime. And while some do show photos of victims, they tend to be blurred. I mean, they can be, obviously you can see what's happened and they can be very disturbing. Um, but this obviously reveals the kind of full tapes of pretty horrific things going on. So personally, um, in some respects, it pulled me out a little bit as realistic as the kind of framing aspects of the film um, were for me in that, like I said, you know, the, the training of behavioral analysts and you get chapters in the film about, you know, the progression, like I say, of the, um, the serial killer's psyche and development of his, his work as he progresses. That worked really well. And just the way, like, for example, the FBI agent, whatever, who is kind of leading the class says at the beginning, we're going to use these tapes for you know, educational purposes. At the end of, um, you know, this class, I know that statistically so many of you will not want to continue. So many of you will, you know, and it was really kind of hit home and really kind of that heightened sense of, of realism and you were anticipating obviously what was coming. And I thought that worked really, really well. And he warns the students as he plays bits. And obviously the, the footage, um, because they start chronologically with his first crime, becomes more and more kind of gruesome and um, graphic. And But even the first one, we see him abduct an eight-year-old child and nothing is seen. We just see the abduction, the way he approaches her with the camera, strikes her over the head, we, we believe. We don't really see anything. And then puts her in the car. And I just thought that was incredibly disturbing, especially with the scenes that followed of the parents crying and you find out what happened to the child and when they found um, the body. And that's... D did you agree? I vividly remember all of these scenes, and it still makes me uncomfortable to think about them. Oh, my... That, that scene is really sets up just exactly what kind of shocking stuff you're going to see. And that's probably the least horrific thing you see, but it's still just horrible. Especially when you hear the stuff that happens afterwards. It's, it just makes it, your skin crawl. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew uh, from that first scene, like, this, this was not a film that a lot of people should watch. Like, you know, I would not show this film to my wife. Like, absolutely not. Because true crime documentaries scare her anyway. But with this added element and, you know, especially with the, the child abduction, oof, it, it's it's heavy stuff to watch. And, uh, you know, I don't think you can, even though they don't show anything, I don't think you can take in a whole lot of this material too often or, or it would really get to you. And, you know, it's, it's like the FBI profiler says in the beginning, really. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And he's speaking to the audience there as he's with the kind of trainees um, kind of directly. I, you know, I, I take it and. That's it. Like I say, I, I watch a lot of true crime. I'm, you know, incredibly interested in the behavioral analysis and psychopathy, all that. But, I mean, you know, obviously when I'm watching some of them, they are, I mean, they're all horrific, but they can be very, very hard to watch. And I can't kind of watch too many at once. And this scene just encapsulates the whole film, I think. And like you say, you really don't see anything. So it really sets that up. Um, but after this kind of success with his first abduction and murder, the killer then kind of refines his uh, approach and he's less impulsive and he selects the area in which he'll strike again. And we see him with the camera convince a couple that his car is broken down and could they give him a ride to the local gas station. And en route, he clubs the male in the head 
and subdues the female um, using a cloth um, that has um, some kind of chemical solution on it. And he films her face in close-up. And the investigators are talking about how that would take patience and um, practice to actually be able to do that. And we see then the killer on the tape wake the woman up um, by poking her and he's talking in a very strange voice which really, really got under my skin. Um, But when the camera pans down, he's performed a C-section on her and he's placed the severed head of her husband inside her womb before sewing her up again. What what did you make of that? I mean, I just really, I have no words that can like, you know, convey my disgust, but I mean, you know, it's weird, the the fascination with uh, killers and serial killers in particular, you know, I mean, I, I watch this stuff and like, you know, I know these are horrible, messed up people, but uh, I always want to know more about them, which is very strange. And, you know, I, I think most people do. And I, you know, I, I wonder if there's a psychological reason why we as human beings... Uh, want to know these things like a morbid curiosity but getting back to what he did to the the young woman i mean just oh uh, i mean i i just i was like oh my god i think that was pretty much my reaction it was just like the abduction of the little girl where the sense where something happened and i was like wait what happened and then afterwards they explain it in the interviews and i'm like oh my god that is then i think back to the footage and it's just every single let me get this point out Every single frame of these like violent acts, I remember. This is just oh my god! I thought it was so horrible, and it almost sounds kind of cartoony in description. The whole idea of him putting him putting like the severed head in her stomach, it seems a little outlandish. But when you see it, it's it's horrific. I mean, I think that's a key word with this movie is horrific. It's just nightmarish. Yeah, and it really does stay with you. I like, I don't know. You just uh, you can't really get rid of those images. So. You know, I, I will warn our uh, our audience here, like, you know, before you watch this film, like, know you are in for some heavy stuff. Yeah. Because it's, it's pretty brutal. Yeah, I don't care pretty what brutal. you've seen before. You need to be... Heed our warning, okay? <laughs> yeah. Tread lightly. Be yes. careful. Yes, and I think the film is incredibly clever in how it presents that footage because like we said with the little girl at the beginning you don't see anything it couldn't show anything really um obviously but the way it's presented and then here like mike said maybe you're not quite aware as the camera pans down it's quite grainy exactly what has happened but then we get that kind of um explanation verbally and it happens again a bit later in the way that a scene is described and then when we see the image um, the body is the other way around, so you can't see the kind of the wounds that have been described. But it's a really clever way of doing it without being too graphic and really letting your imagination run away with itself. And I thought the film, in terms of the found footage, really crafted that um, in a in a very clever way, even on top of the um, kind of more graphic um, scenes of the killer. In we get snippets, you know, there's one point where he has a hand and he's got it in a clamp in his workshop wherever he is and he's blowtorching the fingers literally to take the uh, fingerprints off and he's depositing we find out later he's very clever body parts in different uh, regions so that local 
um, law enforcement agencies are picking up on the fact that another um, area has basically the same person. So he's re he's getting away with it, and the identities of the victims aren't known because of what he's doing to them post mortem. And um, so I thought it was incredibly clever in the way that it approached all of those elements. Yeah, that's one of the things I really appreciate about this movie is that as brutal and gruesome as it is, it's not like something like hostile to where it's like full in the camera. It is, it's a lot with uh, doing, I thought back to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a way, not quite to that degree because you still do see a lot of gruesome stuff, but there's a lot of stuff that's more implied and described that really makes it, that enhances how horrific the stuff you see is already. Yeah, sometimes it's what you don't see that really gets to you. Exactly. And, but you do see plenty in this movie, but there is still yeah. a lot that's more described, like the abduction and, and with, of the little girl and stuff like that. Yes, and um, the authorities discover um, that the killer made himself known in CCTV footage um, at another gas station sometime before the couple were um, abducted in the car and he used sign language to give clues about where he was intending to dispose of one of the bodies. So he's, you know, there's quite a game going on here. And we then see video footage of him stalking his next victim, um, a teenager called Cheryl Dempsey, and she's home alone. He enters um, walks through the house without her being aware. Her boyfriend arrives, and the, the killer places the camera where it can't be seen and hides in a closet until he's ready to attack um he abducts cheryl but murders and mutilates tim leaving his corpse at the scene um and it's only after the discovery of the tapes that we see that the crime scene has been carefully arranged to obscure psychological profiling so he's really kind of aware of his uh, position and you know what the authorities will be doing to try and track him down which only makes him scarier. And I think this is the point where we get the description of the butchered body, like I said, where he's been literally um, sliced open from his anus to his um, to his neck. And, you know, it's very, very graphic. And then we see the body on the floor face down. And I thought that was very, um, like I say, well done. Um, and Cheryl is imprisoned in the basement and we get quite a bit of footage of them together and this is really it's kind of compelling viewing in a very kind of morbid way like the killer himself has a very theatrical costume shall we say he has a cape he has a mask with a kind of beak on it um similar it reminded me of plague doctor from um i think it's the 17th century yeah, I thought of a, a in, Clockwork Orange too. In Europe, yes, yeah, cinematically, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but he's extremely theatrical. He wants her to call him um, master, and he's calling her slave. And he, again, it's just it, like you say, it's not very much. It's not close up in terms of you don't get the gore in your face, but just the nature of what's going on and what is being said and the threat is very, very uncomfortable. And we do see him torturing her um, 
and we also see him torturing another woman who he picks up in a car. I think he pretends to be a police officer at that point, does he? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, 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 uh, was it this? Was this girl the the prostitute? I'm trying to to remember. Oh was yes, the prostitute. Yes, that that. Sorry, then. And at one point, she mistakes him for being an officer. I think she thinks he's maybe undercover or whatever, um, because he won't let her out the car. Right. But he and that is just what he's saying to her. And he's, you know, there are no. She can't get out of the car. He's taken the locks away, and he's come around to the car to get her. She's got nowhere to go. She's screaming, and. Then we have a section where the two women are together at one point, and it's it, at one point. I'm not sure if it's Cheryl or the other woman who is um, tied, hogtied. Oh yeah, that oh was god, really, oh that was Cheryl. Really yeah. Was that Cheryl? That, that was really. Yeah, she's got like disturbing. a mask on. I think she's got something on her face. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, the the mask made it even more disturbing. Oh, yeah. That he he put on her. I mean. I don't know, as if it wasn't disturbing enough, right? Yeah, and he's he's reducing her identity to, well, he's taking it away. He will not let her say her name. He's in the, her name is slave, and he's master. And we see him kind of constantly um, belitt- belittling her um, psychologically. Just you know, he says that he's killed her family. She's got no one but him. Um, and as well as the you know the the, the physical abuse and. At this time, Cheryl's mother, Victoria Dempsey, appeals to um, Cheryl's kidnapper in a televised statement. And in, you know, anybody who's watched any true crime shows will know that a lot of um, serial killers like to inject themselves into the um, into the case. And he goes to see her offering to help in finding Cheryl. So he's obviously filming at this point, And she on camera realizes that it's him and again it's not graphic but it was this that bit really really again got to me i thought that bit was really disturbing did that have the same effect on you oh yeah and i think he like laughs and he, as he walks away it's just uh it, it just makes you yeah just this evil laugh man oh just like uh i mean it just makes you think how how there are some really messed up people in this world. Yeah, that shit happens. I, oh, all, I know. Oh, yeah. The the Cheryl Dempsey stuff is was the most disturbing to me. It's hard to say what was the most disturbing thing in this, but just what he does to that girl, because shit like that happens. Yeah. And it's, yes. it's just terrifying to me, and, and it just hits you in, in such a way that makes you look at the world and makes you look at the evil in the world and how far-fetched this isn't, how, how close to reality... All of this is, especially that aspect of it. Yeah, man, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we have uh, in the beginning um, some shots, like I said, of dismembered, um, you know, bodies and him literally cutting off a woman's head, which is grotesque enough, but it's kind of the smaller bits with her that are the most impactful for me personally. Um when he's like, you know, torturing her and all the little things he's saying to her, just the way he keeps um, like dunking her head in water until she says what he wants him to say. And we don't see any of the sexual abuse, but again. But we know it's there. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We talk yeah. about that stuff a lot, but I don't think they showed any sexual stuff on camera. They didn't. And that was quite an interesting thing that they didn't even, you know, show anything kind of starting to happen even. It was just a kind of control. Um, but maybe that's something to do with the killer 
himself. Maybe he didn't want that to be shown on camera. That's how I read it. Yeah, I, I he had, he had control of what was actually being recorded. Because they say at the ending that there's a they uh, there's I don't remember how much they say, but they say there's a big number of tapes that are missing, and yes. we don't know what's on those tapes. So maybe the, it yes. could be stuff like that. Exactly. And like I said, those tapes were left for a reason. You know, from what we've seen in this killer, he didn't leave those by mistake. And it's through those clues that Cheryl is actually discovered in the killer's empty house um, in a box with a mask on like she's a living doll. And they think she's dead, but she is kind of barely alive. And she's extremely um, traumatized uh, psychologically damaged from our, from her ordeal, we find out. I mean, they go through her, a list of her injuries. You know, she has several broken bones. They imply that her bones have been basically, um, even though they're already broken, that they've been put into devices like that um, to make sure that they have and, and won't heal properly, which is awful. She's got burn marks all over her. Her teeth have been pulled out in places. Um, and they say that she has been, um, her genitals have been um, electrically shocked which is disturbing enough. And then he said that there's also yeah. sexual um, abuse that the doctor himself won't say. And it's those little touches, again, that really resonate with the, in terms of the realism, that, you know, they're not showing it, they're not talking about it, they're just kind of hinting at it. And she is so um, irreversibly damaged that, um, in a later interview where she looks completely, she looks like a skeleton really compared to the the girl we saw at the beginning, photos of this, you know, young blonde girl. She identifies with her captor and defends him saying that she loves him, he loves her and he'll come back for her. And then we get um, a kind of freeze shot on her face and um, text on the screen says that she um, killed herself shortly after this interview. Uh, what did you think about that kind of twist? Well, it wasn't really a twist, but that development. It was just heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. Like, I just, oh, man, I, I just felt so horrible, you know. Because, um, like like Mike said, this kind of stuff really does happen all too often. And it's it's very believable. So, yeah, just heartbreaking. Exactly. Yeah, you see, you don't see her as a character in a movie anymore. At that point, she embodies all of the people in the world who this has happened to and you see it as something like that and it just it just as you said it's heartbreaking yeah it really is and we then have um before the credits the film is actually dedicated to her and i think that very much reinforces exactly what you're saying there and um we then have a clip that shows one of the faces of the victims and the killer's taunting her by saying that he will make her a deal he'll release her if she doesn't blink and you know she's obviously in distress and as she does close her eyes the film ends and I thought that was a bit of a cinematic ending and it should have ended on um like Mike was saying that notion of you're thinking about Cheryl and what she stands for um and the fact that the killer hasn't been caught and these people out there you know it's, it's like I said on a previous show, there's a, a crazy statistic about how many people right now are imprisoned around the world in basements, wherever. Um, and 
we don't know who he is. It ends on on that note. You know, the beginning, it opens up with the fact that there are, of all the known serial killers, um, as any true crime kind of reader will, will know about, that how many there are that are operating that have never been found. And um, I don't know, the ending, for me, kind of took away from the... Um, the realism a little bit I thought it should have ended a little bit earlier to have that impact that it kind of carried throughout the film I see what you're saying but yeah and I, I agree but uh that that clip does play after the credits so it's just kind of like a little kind of easter egg thing I guess if that's a way to put it yes I d- it just didn't seem to fit in with the documentary style is what I'm saying it was very much like a cinematic fictional film I'd agree with that yeah, yeah, I would as well. Um, and also, it's probably worth mentioning that at one point they think that they have the killer, but then it's revealed not to be the case. But again, in terms of the overall arc of, of the documentary, it doesn't really factor in too much, I didn't think. Well, I, I found that part to be pretty impactful, though, because, you know, essentially the killer sort of frames the the cop right yeah because i just took it as like another one of his games basically yeah i mean it, it definitely was but i i was just like ooh, like the, all the stuff with i love that lethal segment. injection yeah. and everything um so yeah it definitely it had an impact on me there i was just like wow that's this guy is obviously like one of those crazy genius killers like almost like a hannibal yes and i just have to mention the bit where the woman is killed by the he has a device on his fingertips um with her spikes on them and he crawls into the room while she's tied up against a post and he crawls in like an animal and all falls and because of the way the mask is on his head it completely changes the kind of um the dynamics of his body and it is creepy as hell the way he crawls and crawls around the room I literally just had to turn myself around because that just remembering that just freaked me out so much. I have to look at the doorway right now. I didn't say <laughs> that. I mean, that uh, bit was just. Ugh. Yeah, I, I actually, when he actually like stabs her and she's, you know, there's blood coming through the tape and everything. Like, I actually had to look away at that part because it was it was too much. I backed away yeah. from the computer. Yeah. 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 And and then, like you said, the the actual um, part where he impales her was incredibly effective. And that that whole that one segment on its own, out of all of the scenes with him, for me was was a standout. And like you say, just thinking about it now, it's absolutely terrifying. Yeah, yeah and it it's... it helps that that segment is right after the because uh, that's the chick he has who thinks that he's the cop. And I thought that that the whole capture scene to me was terrifying. And then to finish it off with that was just, uh, it was just chilling. So yeah, it's, it's a rough watch (laughs) on on that note. Lucard, uh, what would you give this film? Uh, this is such a hard film to rate because it's very effective at what it does as uncomfortable as it is. It is, uh, it's very well done. It's very effective. My only complaint is I would say maybe a few of the actors aren't that strong, but it doesn't really take away from it, you know, because it is a documentary. And, I mean, everybody is different. So, I mean, these actors could truly just be a little quirky, you know, if they were real people. Since it is so effective, 
as a a horror and a crime documentary. I mean, I would say it is a horror masterpiece in a way. And I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10, but I'm going to say that the reason I don't give it a 10 out of 10 is because it is just so damn disturbing and hard to watch. And, you know, yeah, it's effective, but, you know, we get on that topic of uh, censorship and, you know, it's, whew, it's it's one of those things that not everyone should watch. I'll I'll just end with that. To me, this film is, I think all the films we talk about today are just a test, uh, something that really speaks very loudly about what kind of creativity and imagination can be brought to the found footage genre, a genre that has been uh, very saturated in recent years. Um, and this does something, it takes that whole concept of making a documentary movie uh, and telling it like a documentary and it just does it so well. I, I was all caught up in the mystery, I think, uh, and the, the story of this killer. I think that the writing is, is brilliant. I think it's very well written. I, I think it's smart, and it's believable, too. Um, it doesn't feel like it's written by a screenplay writer. It feels real. I, I buy into it. And I, that's exactly the kind of found footage that I love. I've been saying that a lot today, but I really love a movie where I can buy into it, knowing that it's fake. I love... I think all the actors really, I mean, obviously, again, these, these guys aren't going to be doing Hamlet anytime soon, but they perfectly embody the characters they're playing. Uh, I think the movie is horrific, and it's chilling, and it's everything that you'd almost kind of want from a, if you're looking to be scared, this isn't where you go, but if you're looking for, for, for some reason, if you want to be just horrified like you've never been horrified before, this is the perfect movie to watch, and it makes you think about the world. It's not like a slasher or, you know, like the Cloverfield monster. Yeah, they're scary, but I don't exactly fear a fucking giant monster walking out of the uh, ocean every day. But it, this, to me, it looks at, it's such a look at, wow, it, it makes you think about how horrific the world is, all the evil out there, and how any day, at any time, this could happen to any one of us. And that just made it endlessly horrific to me. This is... Uh, easily a 10 out of 10 this is i think this is brilliant filmmaking i want to recommend it so badly but at the same time i can't because it's so you really need to be careful walking into it i still have it on my computer because i want to watch it again but i can't bring myself to do it it's difficult I, I, but i think it's such a brilliant found footage film definitely wow such high praise for you man today i'm loving it yeah <laughs> <laughs> um I think I would also be at a, probably an eight for this one. And, you know, we're talking about found footage today. And as I've said before, we're talking about that manipulation of realism in terms of the formal and stylistic elements. But on top of that with this film, this is real, true horror. So um, coupled together with the kind of documentary format and the slightly different way that it's presented uh, like we said, in terms of the literal found footage that has been left by a killer, um, and then the, the documentary footage that's being kind of used as a framing device around that, it just works so well, and it's incredibly well written, as um, both of you have said, and, you know, like I've um, kind of alluded to throughout the discussion, the way that these scenes and events are presented with some graphic scenes, but also, you know, using kind of verbal descriptions and um, the way that things are kind of edited together 
I just thought it was really, really clever in the way that it put the whole package together. Um, so, yeah, I would be at an eight and I would only take it down a little bit, I think, because of the ending really kind of took it away. I think it would have been so much more of a kind of memorable ending personally for me and more poignant for what the kind of message I thought the film was overall um, if it had ended slightly earlier. Uh, but I think... Again, it's just worth saying that it is very, very graphic and it's not for everybody. So I would definitely read, not necessarily up on the ins and outs of the film before going in, but I guess if you listen to the podcast, you already know. Um, but just to give yourself an idea of that it is a difficult watch. So I would agree both of you there. It's going to haunt me for a long, long time. No doubt about that. It's a different kind of scare than, as you said, Mike, like... Um you know, a, a monster coming out of the ocean or a Frankenstein or a Dracula, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like a, a real life kind of scare. And, you know, to me, that's, that's the most kind of, that's, that's more terrifying than any movie monster, unfortunately. So, you know, I say I'm a horror movie fan and, and I am, but I guess I, you know, in a way I look, I prefer the, the horror movie monsters to these just horrific real life killers, you know, uh, like a Michael Myers or, or a, you know, Freddy Krueger, this kind of stuff is just so disturbing to me. Uh, it makes me want to, like, you know, install a security system in my house and, um, you know, get, like, a huge cache of weaponry to protect my family <laughs> and also put, like, an electric fence at a high voltage around my house, too, just to protect from the outside world. Yeah, it makes I you mean, feel unsafe. Yes. It, oh, man, it, it totally does. It really, really does. <laughs> that was fun. I love how we're all yeah. sad and now looking behind us. And... I know, right? Like, uh, I'm like, man, I should have left my dog out. <laughs> <laughs> so following on from that, um, the next film that we'll be talking about, Lake Mungo, is a supernatural film, but... There are other elements to the story, I think, that kind of tie into um, a lot of what we've been talking about. I feel like something bad is going to happen to me. It hasn't reached me yet, but it's on its way. Family and friends the normally of tranquil Palmer setting of Ararat to pay their final respects to a young Palmer woman Wolf. taken too soon. Ten days after Ellie's funeral, stuff started happening around the house. Sounds seemed to come from Ali's old room. They didn't really relent. So I thought, well, I'll just set up a camera to, you know, I see anything. I looked back and there was footage of a figure moving across the hallway. The image was quite unsettling because it certainly looked like Alice. Don't you close your eyes? I usually uh, videotape my sessions. Something was happening inside that house and I wanted to find out what it was. We checked the tapes. There was a ghost in our house. Alice kept secrets. She kept the fact she kept secrets a secret. Something bad is gonna happen to me. Alice knew she was going to die. I feel like something bad has happened. It hasn't reached me yet, but it's on its way. <gasps> and it's getting closer.
you know, people have said that parallels can be drawn between um, the young girl who died, 16-year-old Alice, and Laura Palmer from Twin Peaks, as both were seemingly innocent local girls in their respective towns who lived a hidden life. And Anderson has cited um, David Lynch as one of his key filmmaking inspirations. I recognize the name Palmer instantly, and I, I thought of Laura Palmer. Yeah. Uh, even though I have not actually seen Twin Peaks. I, I know about it a little bit, and actually I remember it being on when I was a kid. But to kind of get into the plot, um, 16-year-old Alice Palmer drowns while swimming with her family um, at a dam in Australia. And um, I just wanted to ask what you thought of the opening scenes that set the film up um, in terms of the kind of veracity, because we see the family and her together on holiday. We see video footage of her, stills of her, and they're all talking about her. And then all of a sudden... We get the photos of her dead body after she's been in the water for quite a period of time. And it's, I mean, I found that quite shocking personally. I wasn't expecting it. Was that the same for you? I'll be honest, uh, at the beginning of this film, I thought that they started, I thought they started off uh, very well, kind of giving me a sense of who these people were. I I bought into the family and I felt for them and for uh, this dead girl, uh, Alice, but, um, I I don't I was kind of bored at first to be honest. I thought I was gonna fall asleep. I it was just kind of I didn't know what I was in for, so I guess I wasn't just prepared for the very slow buildup. But I'll be honest, in retrospect, I thought that that was just a smarter move. It definitely worked for me. I mean, I felt horrible for the family. I can't even imagine losing a child. So, and then uh, of course the photo of her body was um, particularly disturbing. So. That was rather uh, shocking for me. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And of course, we get the kind of title card at the beginning in a very similar vein to Blair Witch um, that kind of explains the situation and portrays it to be a, a um, a true story. And then after... Um, she has died. Uh, strange things start to happen, and her teen brother uses cameras set around the house to record um, what then seem to be images of Alice's ghost appearing throughout the home. Um, and I must admit, these were quite creepy. Did you? Uh, what did you think of the ghostly images? I freaked the shit out of me. Oh my god. That I kept having every time it would zoom in on something in the background, and you got that sound effect. I I I, I spent about eighty percent of the movie looking over my shoulder because it yeah. was because it's so subtle in the way. There's no jump scares or anything or loud noises. It's all just stuff moving in the cameras or just shots of her looking into the camera, and it just I thought it was terrifying. I don't know why, but it just freaked me out so much. It's weird because I didn't particularly find the ghost, the images of the ghost terrifying. I did find the music pretty haunting, but it didn't, it didn't really scare me that much. I don't know. Um, I thought they were quite effective. I mean, we have from the beginning, we have the the son say that he, for a project, his own personal project, he's taken a picture of the back garden every six months or whatever it is, and after her death, there is um, a figure in the image and it's blurred but you could argue that you know it looks like the figure of a a young girl and then we see somebody a figure walking through the hallway um in the middle of the night and i think there's just like static kind of shots of her um 
stood in her bedroom. You see her in the mirror, reflecting in, you know, actually moving at one point, reflected in another, another mirror. And yeah, I, I did find them quite scary. But I think, like Mike said, I think it was on Facebook about how blurry it is. Um, you're con- it's so pixelated. You're looking for stuff all the time. So it completely sets you on edge because of how kind of poor the the quality of the um, the film is. It, it, it kind of exacerbates that sense of apprehension. Personally, I thought anyway, so I agree with Mike on that. Yeah, and it grounds it a bit more. I, uh, I don't need everything in my face or anything, but just giving me that just a little amount that's much more, as we said earlier, much more haunting to, to me and uh, more effective, especially for this type of story, which isn't... Uh, I think more than any of the films we we talk about today, this one really is a documentary feel. Uh, this is, I mean, it does. It's not like it's a documentary, but then it leads up to where we're running through the house or we're running through the apartment building or anything like that. It's a uh, documentary through and through, and I felt that kind of aspect added uh, some fright to it, but it always kept with that documentary aesthetic. I was also quite impressed with the plot and how I didn't see certain elements coming. And a good example of that is the fact that we find out that Matthew, the brother, was actually setting up the sightings of his dead sister to give the family reason to exhume her body to give his mother closure. His father saw the body um, when it was pulled from, from the water, but his mother didn't and she couldn't come to terms with the fact that Alice was dead. And she's having some very disturbing nightmares, which did kind of get under my skin a little bit where Alice walks into her room and stands at the bottom of her bed and just stares at her and you know she doesn't want to open her eyes when she wakes up from this nightmare and um so this is the son's reasoning for actually bringing about an exhumation and they do they exhume her and have a kind of a reburial essentially but I mean were you shocked by that reveal because we find out that where she's meant to have appeared in in videos of tourists around the local area is actually him wearing her her coat and walking through the house. I wanted to choke that kid. Oh my god! God damn it! <laughs> it was just like, oh man, that was a really dick thing to do, you know? Yeah, dick move, man. Yes, exactly. But I thought that kind of lended some more believability to it because I mean, people will hoax stuff like this all the time and. I mean, they even went on to explain how he did it, which I thought was really interesting and, uh, you know, something unique that you don't typically see in documentaries or anything like that. Anything relating to the paranormal, certainly it's, you know, it's usually, what's that sound over there, you know? (laughs) Uh, Completely. And it's that manipulation of realism and what is actually happening in the truth within the film itself. So I thought that was a really interesting kind of commentary, I thought, on found footage. I read it as anyway. Um, that we're getting that within the film. And I thought, you know, drawing on your points about the the actor's performances, that the mother really sold that when she says, you know, I do not know why he did this. I do not know his reasons for it. Cause it's obviously just brought about more grief for her. Yeah, I felt really horrible for her. I mean, I can't imagine going through that. No, completely. And then to have to essentially go through it again. Upon closer review of the tapes, because the mum is obviously still obsessed with it but she's obviously it's all in her mind she actually sees um that the neighbors um that the father of the the family next door the neighbors are 
he's actually crouched in Alice's bedroom. She can see him on the footage as her son is pretending to be Alice walking across the hallway. And the next door neighbour, Brett, is actually crouched down in her bedroom, but potentially waiting for um, Matthew to walk on because he heard somebody, which I just thought was chilling. You do not expect there to be a second figure. Oh, yeah. And you don't know what's happening at that point. I mean, did you have any idea or...? I I had suspicions. I was like, all right, they have to be involved in maybe her death somehow. You know, I I think maybe I read even more into it than what was really going on. But I was like, what is this, you know, kind of creeper doing in this teen girl's bedroom? You know, very strange. I like that kind of sense of uh, that misdirection. I think is freaky where I'm looking at something over here. Uh, but then at a second look, uh, they show me that there was something there really creepy that I didn't even see before. And I think that type of kind of lifting up another layer to reveal something else kind of freaky. I don't know. That, that to me is really creepy. I think that's really cool. It's like looking at a photograph of like ghosts or supposed ghosts. And they say, oh, if you look in the background, you see it there and you don't even notice it. I think that that type of um, notion and adding that to that scene is really cool. I really think so. And the fact that, like you say, it was there already and nobody noticed it because we were so focused on one particular area because of the way right. the camera was moving. Um, and I love that. And I said before, um, in particular, um, Dario Argento's uh, Jolly films, how often the mystery is revealed right at the beginning. It's right in front of your eyes. And, you know, so that's that same kind of um, element for me. And I just thought that was really clever but really creepy in this and his um sorry alice's mom is knows exactly like um lucard was saying that there's a reason he's creeping around in the bedroom and she knows that alice had a safe and we start to get um more information about their relationship and how she's a very private person we even get interviews with her mother and how she says she never could give herself fully to a daughter and how her daughter did the same thing with Alice, her granddaughter, that they were so private, they kept um, to themselves and would only share things if they wanted to. And it's a very interesting kind of mother relationship dynamic because, like, I have a great relationship with my mum and I tell her everything and vice versa. So it was really interesting for me to see that and how it was kind of uh, just pulled out bit by bit Um throughout the the interviews with the family members, particularly the mother. Um, and the mum searches through Alice's room, finds the safe and finds a videotape. And we do get um, some of that footage. And it's very grainy. And I wasn't quite sure what was happening at first. And they're saying that um, Alice used to babysit for the, the neighbouring family. And we get a picture of the family with the, the younger children's faces blurred. And I'm thinking, oh, is this something to do with the children? That's what, that's what I thought at first. Um, but no, we then find out that both the father and the mother have been having sex with Alice, who's obviously 16. And I didn't see that come in. And that was, you do see something being um, instigated on camera, but it, like I say, it's blurry, but it does still, on watching this on the back of um Pekipsy tapes. I just, I, don't, I found it really disturbing. Personally, what did you? It adds another level of unease to it for sure. Adding in that kind of 
the relationship, the sexual encounter they have. It's just something so weird that kind of throws you off. A kind of, I know he cited uh, David Lynch as his inspiration. That felt very kind of David Lynchy and just that random kind of weirdness. I mean, I, I don't know a lot about Australian culture, but I know I can say that in American culture, I think that it's pretty accurate of teen girls and their parents today were, you know, and, and teen boys are the same way. They have a lot of secrets. Oftentimes families don't really talk that much, which is unfortunate. In a way, people are living these two separate lives. So I, I thought, you know, as disturbing as it was, I, I thought it was kind of accurate. I think because it was so believable and so realistic and you're so kind of focused on this supernatural aspect that potentially pulls you out of the realism, it really kind of yanks you back. Definitely, because I, I mean, I certainly never would have saw that coming. There was really no way to. No, and then their family already had contacted a psychic who, you know, was trying to help them understand these strange events in the house. And they then find out that um, Alice had actually met with him several months earlier um, to tell him that she was having dreams about drowning, being dead, and her mother not being able to see or help her. And really interestingly, we have a an interview um, segment, because he tapes all of his um, interviews, with Alice and the psychic. And Alice is describing exactly the same nightmare that her mother is, but she's walking into the bedroom and she says that things have changed. And that bit really threw me off because I was thinking, is it a time travel thing? That she is in her nightmares seeing, you know, experiencing what her mother is experiencing after she's died. She's actually dreaming about walking into her mother's room, which has changed slightly because she's she's passed away. Thing, you know, the room will have changed in whatever way, and her right. mum is dreaming, um, you know, kind of after her death of her doing that. And I just thought they obviously had that connection, and that was the sad thing about it because her mum says at one point, "I hope she knows how much I loved her." Yeah, it's it's like her mother couldn't really show her how she felt. No, but they were kind of connected, I don't always say psychically, whatever. I mean, like I said before, I don't believe in the supernatural or anything like that. But, you know, with my mum especially, it's strange how many times, and I've heard other people say it as well, you know, with, with close family members, that you do think and you do, you know, one person will call um, at the same time. So, do you know what I mean? That you get that kind of connection? Yeah, it's very strange. I mean, when you're close with family members how sometimes you can sort of just sense things or something might be wrong, you know? Yeah. So I just thought that was very poignant and very, very sad in light of when we hear um, Alice's interview with the psychic and she's talking about how when she stood at the bottom of her mum and dad's bed, she wants to talk to him and say what's wrong, but she can't. And she feels like the loneliest person in the world, um, that they can't connect in that way, yet they are connected. It's a very strange kind of... Um, few scenes but they really kind of stayed with me well i think the the drama in this film is is really actually what drives it for me more than the the supernatural plot line yeah and that's interesting considering it's found footage that there is so much drama but it's so realistic and then alice's boyfriend comes forward um with cell phone video footage um that shows alice on a school trip to lake mungo and the video shows her 
very distraught as she uh, digs in the sand at the base of a tree with her bare hands. And her family travels to Lake Mungo. Um, I think she was there a few weeks before her death, maybe a month, a couple months. And um, they find the tree from the, the video and they dig at the base and they discover in a plastic bag um, items of sentimental value to Alice, like a necklace and um, I think a bracelet and her cell phone. And her mother remarks earlier on, I think in the in the interviews that she'd been away on a trip and you know she seemed fine. She'd lost um, a couple of things, but other than that, it was fine. Um, so obviously, we're wondering now what's on this cell phone. And the video footage shows her walking down um, the darkened shoreline of the lake by herself, using her cell phone as a light. And I think we saw this on the, the boyfriend's or one of the children's um, phones. Her literally walking away. And this, for me, was the kind of key scene of the film. Um, she, we see, basically, a figure, very, very blurry, like everything else in the, in the film, um, in the distance, and it's coming closer towards her. And the light from the cell phone reveals the face, and it appears to be Alice, bloated and dead, as we saw her body um, after being recovered from the lake in the beginning of the film. And I've got chills down my spine just seeing that. Um, and the, the figure kind of lunges forward or Alice trips something. It comes towards the camera. And I, I thought this bit was absolutely terrifying. I mean, what did you make of it, of the figure and what it signified? Did you think it was a death omen? Yeah, I, I don't know. But it, it was just such at a... Such out of left field for me. I thought that was a really great curveball that it really the movie uh, threw at me at a time where I I feel like it needed it, uh, and it's just so creepy and, and freaky and as a word I keep using haunting. And even when when the family is talking about it afterwards, I wish I could remember what, somebody says something uh, about her looking at her own death or it being an omen for her own death or something like. Something like that, and it was just a really good line that made it, that made that sequence really just stick with me. I think it's a really creepy kind of twist on it. No, I'm I'm entirely there with you, and like you say, the key word for this film is haunting in in all respects. And we then see her friends happen upon her with their film footage, and she's clearly distressed. Um, but you know, they're kind of taking her along with them um and i think it's after that point obviously that she buries the uh, the cell phone um but alice's family after viewing this they i think believe that it was death omen that from her diary entries and her interview with the psychic and just how she's been a general de demeanor that she knew that she was going to die um and the family then moves out of the house feeling that Alice had simply wanted them to know who she really was and what she had seen and also to potentially um, expose the, the neighbours who moved away um, after her death and we then get a kind of mid-credits sequence um, that shows all of Matthew's hoax pictures and again an extra layer like Mike was saying we actually see her manifested in the photographs or the video footage but not where he had kind of placed her um 
And then the final shot of the film is of the family in their new home and the camera just zooms in on the window and we see a very, very blurred shape. Like, you can't really make out anything, but you could, you know, suggest that there was a figure there. So, you know, what did you think about the ending and um, how the kind of found footage element was was, achi- was used to achieve um, that effect throughout? I really like the ending because... Where the movie leaves off, I was just kind of like, oh, is that it? We're not really kind of going anywhere with it. But during the credits where you see the um, the pictures where she's there, and then we see them in the new house and she's still there, I thought that was a really great way to end it. I thought that was really cool and kept with the kind of uh, the, the freakiness of and that whole theme of Things aren't always as they seem. I thought it was just a great send-off. And there was a weird... After all the credits are done, there was some weird uh, shot with, like, lightning. And you see a hurt... Did you guys see that? Yeah, I, I was going to ask you guys. I like, had no idea what that what was about. Make of that? Yeah, that was weird. I mean, it freaked me out, but I didn't really get it. Look, I must admit, um, like, thinking of her as a death omen, if she'd have seen herself um you know her her own death and that was what it was then because she was appearing as the family actually drove away at the end and packed up i was actually expecting their car to be hit and that she was a death omen for them Ooh, oh like that that's how i that's how i kind of read the whole thing at the end because i couldn't understand why she would come back do you know what i mean If, if that was yeah the case, I, I just found that a little bit kind of confusing, but um, but then you could read it that it wasn't a death omen, that was it demonic, was it, you know, you could read, I suppose, quite a lot into it. You know, she could have been psychic, she could have been um, herself, you could read, you know, there's meant to be a revered psychic in the film. She herself could have just anticipated her own death and had that psychic connection to her mom, And... Yeah, that that's I think you can read so much into it and I really appreciated that. So Yeah, I had not thought of that. Yeah, but it's a really interesting little film with so much going on, but it's all kind of packaged in a very, very subtle way. Like you say, that documentary style just really camouflages all of the elements that are working together. Um but in terms of ratings, Mike, what would you give this? What really sets this movie aside from the others, as we, uh, we've mentioned, is that family dynamic. I think it brings in a big human element to where there are human elements to these other films we've talked about, but this is the most unique because it's that family dynamic, and that adds uh, a different kind of relatability to it, that family drama, while also just freaking the shit out of me with those pictures. That was hard. That just creeped me out so much. It made my skin crawl, even thinking about it. Uh, but it's so subtle. It's not in your face. It's not loud. It's not gimmicky. I think it's such a well and very intelligently crafted kind of horror film. Uh, I, I'm going to have to give this a 9 out of 10. I really, really enjoyed this movie. And I'd be curious to see how it plays watching it a second time, looking for those kind of things that get revealed later on, looking for the hidden stuff in those pictures, even like stuff we see in the credits i think that's just so cool i think it's i love background stuff in in movies some uh, in horror movies especially stuff that's hard to find but if you look hard enough you can see it and it's kind of creepy and 
haunting, and I, I think this does that perfectly. Definitely, 9 out of 10. I'm loving your scores today. And yeah. Card, <laughs> what would you give this Luke card? Um, <clears throat> I think I would be at about an 8 out of 10 for this. I really, really like the acting in this. I, I think it's a really accurate look at today's modern families. And as I said before, um, you know, a really accurate look at uh, teenage girls' lives. And I appreciated that a lot more than the supernatural stuff. The ghost stuff really, it didn't freak me out much. And like I said, the music was pretty creepy, but it, it was so grainy that it, I guess it, it didn't really have an effect on me, or maybe I've just seen too many horror movies, <laughs> one or the other. Oh, I will say that the the picture of the um, of the girl's body right after she had come out of the lake, that part was creepy to me. Yes, I would have to agree. And I think I would be at an eight here, and I agree with everything that both of you said. Um, more so with Mike, though, in terms of I found it to be really creepy. Um, for everything you know all the reasons that he said but um i really do think that the supernatural elements and how creepy that was was completely enhanced by the family dynamic and that those two elements worked so well together that if you had kind of taken one away it would have been interesting but for me the two together just really complement each other so well to make a really powerful film and it really stays with you um and like you say it's making a comment about familial relationships and you know how well people really know each other um but the fact that it's very open-ended in terms of the the supernatural element like i said you know i've just kind of you know reamed off a few readings myself that i could potentially kind of go with i really loved that about it and i thought that was quite um not only clever but quite ambitious in in the way that it did that and again, slightly different in terms of the found footage style and form from the other films. I think everyone we've chosen to look at today has been different in the way that it presents that found footage. And I think that's really interesting to compare them all together. Um, but yeah, it's definitely unique for me because I think this is a really enjoyable film. And I think it's one that be that is very interesting on um, a rewatch because of the fact, like Mike said, there's so much kind of contained and layers, um, but also of the background elements, literally. Uh, within the footage itself. Yeah, I would definitely watch it again, no doubt about that. So, moving on to the final film for today, which is Cloverfield from 2008. And I know that oh, Mike yeah. is the biggest fan in the world of this film. So, would you like to take it away? I, I, will, I will be happy to, yes. is Robert Hawkins. And approximately seven hours ago, uh, something attacked the city. Um, you found this. If you're watching this, then you know more about it than I do. Hello? Beth? Beth, where are you? Okay, we cannot go into the middle of the city. We gotta get out of here. There's nothing you can do for now. 
You know what that thing is? Whatever it is, it's winning. Do you have any idea what's out there? I don't care what's out there. Listen to me. She's dying. Turn that camera. How it all went down. As I've mentioned on this show before, I absolutely love this movie because I was, I vividly remember being in the theater. I was 12 and I saw Transformers. The, it was at the midnight show. And this trailer, if any of you guys remember the first trailer for that, it happened, and I just remember that was much cooler than even the the movie was, uh, the Transformers movie. And we walked out just talking about that trailer, and I was just for <laughs> months obsessed with figuring out what this was. And a lot of the times we get this kind of cool marketing to have no payoff, but I thought it was not only was it such a cool mystery leading up to the release and such a unique way of doing it, I thought it's an awesome payoff. I thought it was so cool. Now, do you guys remember the were you guys at all into the marketing of this film? I wasn't really into the marketing of the film, but I too saw the trailer when watching Transformers and I was intrigued, no doubt about that. Exactly the same for me. Well, Cloverfield is a 2008 American found footage monster horror film directed by Matt Reeves and produced by JJ Abrams and Brian Burke and written by Drew Goddard. Uh, a lot of who weren't huge names at the time, but have since become much bigger, for sure. Uh, yeah, no doubt about that. The film was well-received by critics, and it earned $170.8 million at the box office against a $25 million budget. And I want to say it, it still holds a record for highest opening in January. I think it had around $40, $45 million or something. Something like that. It, it, but as you can see, in the end, it did very well. Uh, the film was presented as found footage from a personal camcorder, recovered by the United States Department of Defense. A disclaimer at the beginning, it states that the footage is of a case-designated Cloverfield and, and was found in area US-447, formerly known as Central Park. The video consists primarily of segments taped the night of Friday, May 22nd. Occasionally, older segments are shown from a previous video that was mostly taped over. The first video segment shows Beth waking up on the morning of Monday, April 27th, having had sex with Rob, a previously platonic friend. I think we are all very happy to see him break out of the friend zone. Gives us all a lot of hope. <laughs> we then cut to Friday, May 22nd, when Rob's brother Jason and his girlfriend Lily prepare a farewell party for Rob, who will be moving to Japan. Their friend Hud gets stuck with the camera to film testimonials during the party. Now, what did you guys think of the characters uh, thus far? Uh, we spent a lot of this beginning really trying to get you familiar with these, with this uh, unknown cast. Now, what do you guys think of them? I thought that the, the script writing in, in the film was great. And, you know, there are some comical moments and you really get that sense of camaraderie between all the friends. And particularly with um, 
Beth and Rob at the beginning, that kind of how their relationship is developing in light of um, the drama um, around, you know, him moving and then how that kind of coincides with all of the action that happens. So I think it sets it up really well in, in some very kind of, you know, the very short scenes, but they pack everything in. They manage to establish the characters really quickly. One could probably say maybe a little bit more of a slow burn would have been better, but I don't know. I, I think it for this film in particular, it really works. Yeah, I have to agree with you guys. Um, I like that in the beginning, it really kind of, it, it really does, it gets you into the monster commotion pretty fast, but I, I felt like I got a sense of these characters, and I think that's a testament to the cast, who were relatively unknown for the time, most of which have become certainly bigger uh i don't think anyone's a list right now i think probably the most recognizable cj miller but even um oh the girl who plays marlena whose name i'm forgetting uh she she's been in a lot of stuff certainly in the past couple of years and even the guy who plays jason the, i mean they're mainly character actors but i think they brought a lot here and i think although obviously uh like all the other films, you, you you know that it's fake. Uh, obviously, a fucking monster did, hasn't destroyed New York, but these guys really make you relate to them and make you feel uh, what's going on. And even though you could say kind of some of... I've heard uh, critics say that they weren't into a lot of the love story of it, but I don't know. I thought it was simple, and I, I really liked it. Now, after this whole... Um, the party, we near the end of it, and after Beth has an argument with Rob uh, and leaves the party with another guy, an apparent earthquake strikes and causes a brief power outage. The local news reports uh, an oil tanker capsized near Liberty Island. Uh, when the partygoers leave the building to check out the commotion, the heavily damaged head of the Statue of Liberty is hurled into the street uh, and it lands right in front of him. And this, uh, this is actually a very good question. Would you guys have left the building? Man, it's so hard to know in that kind of a situation. But I would have probably tried to have waited it out, which, you know, would have obviously been a big mistake. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I would have been like, all right, let me not get caught up in all the commotion going on outside. It's kind of zombie apocalypse plan, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Have my zombie handbook ready. (laughs) Yeah, I think I think I would have left considering what happened and, you know, the Statue of Liberty's head. I'd have probably left the building. That caught me off guard, like the Statue of Liberty's head just like falling, because found footage you typically associate with kind of low budgets, you know? Yeah, not a lot of big but, special effects. Exactly, but this has those really big special effects, but they're still presented in a way that is at times subtle. I mean, this one wasn't, obviously, but but I think that that really works to like show you, hey, this is a different found footage film. I really like that because it, it's a monster movie. It's a genre film, and it, it's very unique from the other found footage movies. So HUD records what appears to be a large creature several blocks away, uh, which collapses the Woolworth building. And now, what do you guys think of the monster? Like, what did you think it was at this point? Because we really don't, even in the marketing at this point, really we really didn't know much. We hadn't really seen much that we hadn't seen before. But what, what did you think of it? I wasn't sure what the hell it was, to be honest with you. I was like, is it like a sea monster, maybe? We just didn't have a great look at it, but obviously we knew it was huge. Yeah, I was I was thinking you know, Godzilla films also. I was like nuclear testing. Um, 
but I loved the fact that, you know, this huge kind of monster and this, like, huge kind of monster movie that you literally have no idea what it is. And when you look back, you can see the clues at the beginning of the film in the video footage you see later on and how potentially what it could be and, you know, different kind of readings into it. Yeah, a big thing I really like about this movie is that you get all these different uh, shots of the monster and each shot just looks completely different. Like, you don't see what connects to what. And I think um, C. Robert Cargill said it best in his Cloverfield review over on Spill.com. He, he said it was him and four of the critics in the room, and he said, each one of us could sit down and uh, write a description of the monster we saw, and we'd all have different, completely different descriptions, uh, which I think is so cool. And what makes this monster, the Cloverfield monster, so unique and awesome. But once they get to the bridge, the creature's gigantic tail destroys the Brooklyn Bridge that they're on, and it kills Jason and several other people. Uh, and then the news reports show the Army National Guard's 42nd Infantry Division attacking the monster. And smaller parasite creatures, they fall off, and they start attacking nearby people. Kind of very insectoid, in a way. Now, how would you have reacted if you lost your brother or sister in this horrific way? I mean, can you... Uh, even imagine that's horrible to think about because yeah. I'm you know I'm so close with my brother and I mean you know hats off to Rob for being able to sort of keep it together yeah and having to explain uh, it to just, his mom oh uh, I know that was heartbreaking to me like I was just like oh but yeah man um I mean I think I would have just broken down you know if, if I had had to deal with something in that horrific yeah, same. I can't quite imagine how I would react because that's just horrific to think about. But I think that the phone message then from Beth kind of gives him that purpose he needs at that point. You know, there's there's uh, another kind of loved one that he needs to save and he can kind of transpose that onto a new person. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that is really the only thing that drives him forward. Yeah, I think it really adds, I mean, the whole thing with the... um the the death of his brother and with um beth trapped it really brings that relatability to it about what would you do if your brother died what would you do if the girl you loved was trapped in this building but this monster was destroying the city i mean it's it's such a weird kind of almost outlandish kind of way to think about it but it, it's an interesting question that, like what would you do for the people you love and if you lost them Oh, listen to me, man. I'm so sorry about your brother. I'm sorry, man. I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Rob? Continue now with our breaking news story in Lower Manhattan. We are getting some truly extraordinary live images here in the studio. For those of you just joining us, Lower Manhattan is in an absolute state of siege. Oh. And what has been it's astonishing. It's very, very scary. To be honest, Tom, your guess is as good as mine at this point. It, it, there appears to be something coming off of it. Yes. The ground seems to be covered. It looks like there's something falling off of it, doesn't it? Yes, it does. At this point, we just don't know. 
Oh my God! Oh my God! We're, we're getting reports from Donna? The, the, the debris. Oh shit! Donna, can you hear us? Hey. Sort of living thing, and, and that what are you doing? We gotta get out of here. We're in no, that's what I've been telling him. I've been trying to do that. We gotta go right now. The military's evacuating. Hey, Rob, listen to me, okay? We gotta get out of here. It's time to leave the electronics store. Now we gotta go. Come on, stop it. Okay, stop. Wait. Just to find meaning in all of that craziness and just hold on to whatever kind of you know normal relationships that you can what you know and especially like you know he's lost somebody so close to him it's just like I say he's transposing that onto you having to take charge and, and just try and I don't know like I say it looks like oh the shit's completely hitting the fan just trying to survive I think it just breaks out that survivor um spirit because i've heard a lot of people say especially about zombie apocalypse and stuff oh if anything like that happened i just want to be killed you know i just want them to eat me and i'm thinking really which you know like there's no fight in you at all do you know what i mean that's an interesting conversation yeah. but i think it would depend on like who was still alive you know if my family were still alive like yeah i would i would certainly want to keep fighting but man like some of these characters in like walking dead they have nobody left at that point, I would I'd be like, all right, I just I want to go. Yeah, it's like the ending of uh, Toy Story three, where they all just like hold their hands as they're going to the incinerator. Yeah, that movie's sad. By that the movie way. is fucking depressing. Jesus, it's a kids movie, <laughs> yeah. and it's I mean, talk about getting off topic, but but it really is a sad. Movie. Oh yeah, after Jason's death and they escape, Rob listens to a phone message from Beth, and she says that she's trapped in her apartment. And unable to move. Uh, going against the crowd, Rob, Hud, Lily, and Marlena, another party guest that uh, Hud is kind of into, uh, they venture to Midtown Manhattan to rescue Beth. Because, hey, ju- just like a guy, a monster destroying the city, but he just has to chase that ass. That's <laughs> That was the most realistic motivation in this whole movie. Oh, man. Yeah, I gotta ask, like, what does HUD see in Marlena? Because so, she was the most yeah. unlikable character to me. She didn't have a whole lot of charm or anything. No, and she's always blowing him off. Yeah. Like, just totally blowing him off. You'd think he would take the hint, right? I guess, hey, he's desperate, man. Plus, <laughs> the world's about to end. He's trying to, like, get it. come on, let's do this before this monster comes over here. <laughs> I guess so, man. Like, when she explodes, I, I was surprised that you didn't hear him go, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would have kind of ruined the vibe, though, that they were trying to, to present. Yeah. <laughs> well, after this, the uh, the group gets caught in a battle between the creature and the National Guard. It's a big shootout in the street. And they run into the Spring Street Station, a uh, subway tunnel, where they are attacked by several of the parasite creatures. Uh, Mar- Marlena gets bitten by one of the creatures, but she survives the attack. She's seemingly okay. Exiting, yeah, that's sorry? that's a brutal wound, man. Oh yeah, that, that she gets in that scene. Cool. And I mean, I was just really I was surprised that they came out as well as they did from that scene because they look to me the creatures almost look like spiders of some sort. That's a really good way of describing them. And in fact, because one of the things I like about this movie is that it it is kind of like, I know a lot of people. Uh, kind of roll their eyes when I say this, but I find the movie scary at points. And that uh, subway scene in particular where he turns on the night vision and they're on the ceiling, that freaks me out, man. I love that scene. Yeah. It's a really good one. No doubt about that. Now, exiting the subway via the 59th Street Station, I find it very interesting. You put in all these streets. I don't know what any of these mean. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, that's Wikipedia. Okay. <laughs> I wish I knew New York like this, but I mean, I, I've never been to New York, honestly. It's, you know, it's one of those places I want to visit someday. I mean, hell, even when people talk like this uh, locally, I don't know what they're talking about. And you go over to 59th Street and you grab some pizza. You know? <laughs> I don't know. Is that what you think we say in Chicago? That's, no, no, I was talking about New York. Oh, but I guess Chicago, you know, you guys have some known uh, mobsters up there, too. So maybe <laughs> I take offense to that. I'm sorry, man. Well, you know, everybody in Atlanta talks like a hick, right? So, Hey, I wasn't going to say that. I'm going to let you say that. <laughs> I'm going to, uh, you know, continue the stereotyping of the South. <laughs> it's my goal. Because <laughs> we don't have enough stereotypes already down here. Well, our four protagonists, they come to a command center uh, and a field hospital, hospital. It seems like in some kind of mall or store or something where they exit off the the subway. Uh and Marlena, she develops a reaction to the bite. Uh, she's, you know, she's got blood coming out of her eyes, and she looks like she's just about to vomit everywhere. But and then all, everybody freaks out. All the military people freak out, and this causes her abdomen to explode. She just pops and killing her, obviously. And one of the military leaders tells the group uh, when the last evacuation helicopter will depart before the military execute its quote unquote hammer down protocol which will destroy Manhattan in an attempt to kill the creature. I figured this meant nuclear bomb. Uh, no, what it was... Oh, forget. I, I read what kind of missile it was that dropped on the monster. I forget what it's called, though, but it's not a nuke. It's on the tip of my tongue what kind of it was, but I, I don't remember. Becky, do you have any... Do you know about missiles or anything? Of course, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, after making their way through the crumbling apartment building... Uh, um, Beth's building where her building has like collapsed over into another and they have to climb all the way up and cross over the roof. It's crazy. And the group eventually find Beth who is impaled on an exposed uh, rebar, but she, she's alive. Now, did you think when we get up there and she's on the ground, did you buy that she was dead? Cause that would have, that would have sucked. That would have been kind of a bummer. I actually thought she was dead at first. I'm not going to lie. I I was like, like all right, so much time has gone by. Like, the building is just so collapsed. So yeah, I I thought she was gone, and I was like, oh, that sucks so bad because he's already lost his brother. Yeah. After they finally get Beth up and they manage to get her out of a building, uh, the four they make their way to the evacuation site, where they encounter the creature once more, and moreover, uh, Grand Central Terminal. Uh, Lily is rushed into a, a departing Marine Corps helicopter, and she escapes. They bring her. She's just in her own helicopter, so everybody else has to get into their own chopper and follow them. And they witness a U.S. Air Force B-2 spirit bomb. They they just completely obliterate the creature. They just drop all these rock these rockets in there, and they're all cheering and happy. And now, oh, yeah. did you think yeah. that the group? Did you think that they were going to escape? Were you like, okay, movie's over, we're all happy, happy ending? Or did you, like, know what was up? You'd think I would know better by now as many horror movies as I've watched, but but I guess I always have that hope that the, the main characters are going to escape without any problems. Yeah, I knew that something was up. Definitely, because they'd found Beth, so I was like, this isn't going to go well. Yeah, and then the bombing, it appears to, as I said, it, it appears to harm the creature, and it falls and takes down a building with it. 
but then it lunges at the helicopter all up in the camera and it causes it to crash into Central Park. Now, did you guys jump when that happened? Because I vividly remember being in the theater and I, it scared the hell out of me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the film skips briefly less than an hour later. Um, I didn't even realize it was that, that soon after. I, I thought it was right after. Uh, but with a voice uh, on the crashed helicopter's radio warning that the, hel- the hammer uh, down protocol will begin in 15 minutes. And we look around, we see that everyone's knocked out. We think they're all dead. But the, the three friends, they regain consciousness and flee the remains of the helicopter where, of course, the two military people, you know, they're not main characters, so they're dead. And so leaving the camera behind... They should have been wearing the Star Trek red shirts, you know. Oh, right, yeah. Because, <laughs> like, signaling, you know. Because you know if they're wearing the red shirt, they're going to die. Yeah. And it's like, you know, in a, in a horror movie or in a monster movie, if your name isn't on, you know, the poster, you're probably going to die. So true. But when HUD goes to retrieve the camera, which, he, as I said, he's left it behind, the creature suddenly appears. He, they turn around, he's right up there. He gets all up in the camera, and then he eats HUD. He just chews him in half. I was sad. Yeah, yeah. I was sad then. Because I liked HUD. He was like my favorite character in the movie. He was the comedy. <laughs> the bit of relief. He was. <laughs> and he, you know, he was our camera guy, so. And then he was, he was like the snack. guy. After his death, uh, Rob and Beth, they grab the camera and take shelter under Grayshot Arch in Central Park. As air raid sirens begin to blare and the bombing starts, Rob and Beth take turns leaving their last testimony of the dailies of the of the day's events into the camera. Now, what did you guys feel? Now, did you like? Because I I know uh, for a lot of these kind of found footage movies and for this one in particular, I hear a lot of people say that they didn't they weren't into the characters, so this kind of whole moment was sappy to them. But me personally, I know I found myself into the characters and I liked them all, so it. it kind of hurt me a little bit watching them do this. I felt sad. Now, what did you guys think? Yeah, it was the same for me. I mean, I, I really did feel bad for Rob and Beth, but, you know, it's just like their final moments together. The, the only thing I can say is at least that, you know, they were able to spin it together to spend those moments with the, the person they love, you know. Uh, so, I mean, in that respect, it's it's good, I guess, but... Um, but yeah, I, I didn't think it was overly sappy or anything. You know, I, I thought it was it was uh, it was how normal human beings would react to that situation. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, it was that kind of holding hands and looking into each other's eyes and going into the furnace at the end of Toy Story, where it's just like, I mean, is what it is. I mean, this is the end of the road. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this didn't make me as sad as Toy Story, but I was, I was still, yeah. <laughs> I was sad. You know, I, you don't want to see two characters you like die. No, no, I, I thought it was really sad at the end. I didn't think, you know, it was too much at all. I thought it was just kind of right. As they give their last testimonies, we hear the bomb fall down, and then, then the bridge crumbles, and the camera gets knocked out of Rob's hand, and it gets buried underneath some rubble. We see a lot of chaos going on. They profess their love for each other. And then finally, one last explosion comes in, and we hear them scream while the monster roars in pain, and then we cut. And we cut back to footage of Rob and Beth's Coney Island date on April 27th. Rob faces the camera towards him and Beth, and zoom in on Beth, who says, I had a good day. Unnoticed by them, something in the far distance falls from the sky into the ocean. The tape then freezes and cuts out. Movie's over. And now I'm curious... 
I know what it is, but did you guys do you guys know what falls into the falls into the ocean in the background? I assumed it was some kind of alien creature. Yeah, me too. What it is, it's the um Tagruato satellite. It falls into the ocean and that's basically what kind of that leads to the series of events that causes the creature to come out of the ocean cuz the oh. the creature resides on earth. It's I know earlier in the movie, HUD, he mentions uh, about, I don't remember the actual line, but he, he mentions an ocean crevice opening up and finding weird, like, I don't remember what, what he was particularly saying they found in there, but it's supposed to be a situation like that where the the creature is an earthbound creature just from the ocean and that fell down and kind of let it loose. And the the Cloverfield monster itself is, a uh, they've said it's a baby, so there is a mama out there. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> if that was the baby, man. Yeah. Ooh. And actually, um, about a I want to say maybe a month or so after the movie came out, they released a couple images, uh, little Easter egg images where it's, uh, they're images from the satellite underwater, and it kind of shows some of the stuff that this uh, satellite found, where you see some of the parasites down there and stuff. It's actually really cool. See, I, I'm a big Cloverfield oh. geek. Yeah. So then we'll uh, we'll move on to ratings now. Uh, Becky, do you want to start us off? I would give it an eight out of ten. I really enjoyed it. First time watching it. It's very much at the other end of the scale in terms of what we've been looking at today. In that it was a larger budget and you know it's obviously a a huge kind of genre film, a monster um, fan footage film, and. While those two elements may not necessarily go together, I thought it was very um, innovative, uh, you know, of its time. Um, and again, slightly different use of, of fan footage, again, in comparison to everything else that we've looked at today. Um, and I think that overall, I was most impressed with um, Lake Mungo and the... Um, Poughkeepsie tapes and I think those two films are kind of joint in the lead um, of all the films that we've watched I really did enjoy those two and I thought they were very nice kind of complimentary watches I don't think you can maybe describe the, the Poughkeepsie tapes as nice but I thought that they worked very well together watching them um, in such a short space of time For Cloverfield uh, while not as horrifying a film as a lot we've watched today I really enjoy Cloverfield a lot Poughkeepsie tapes is pure horror I think this, for me, is more pure entertainment in that kind of monster movie horror that I more prefer. So it really worked for me, and it's it's a film I'm definitely going to come back to again. I didn't find anything particularly scary, but, you know, I really like the found footage combined with the special effects. And it's just a really well-made, well-paced film. For me, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. So my favorite found footage that we've covered on this show in particular uh, is definitely Wreck. I really, really like Wreck a lot. I mean, it's just a genuinely scary zombie horror film, and obviously, you know, I gave it a, a 10 out of 10, so I don't just hand out perfect scores. But uh, yeah, I think everyone should check that out, especially if you're like me and you're you're kind of like, eh, found footage, you know. Certain films have left a bad taste in your mouth. I would definitely say that you should try this. Well, my choice today, uh, I'm actually going to choose my favorite as Cloverfield, so I'm going to wrap that into one right there. I mean, if I were to choose, I'll just say right now, if I was going to say what's the best, I'd probably have to say something like Poughkeepsie, but 
Uh, my personal favorite, and you're about to hear me geek out about it again, is Cloverfield. I love this movie. I love. I can watch it a hundred times and never get bored of it. I watch it. I mean, that's one of my favorite Blu-rays that I own. Uh, I love immersing myself in the world, and it's each time I watch it, it's like watching it for the first time again. It's always it's a constant payoff to what was such a fun kind of marketing and such a cool experience. I love watching it. It's my kind of monster movie, and it's my kind of found footage movie. I love all the actors. I think they really uh, embody those characters well and bring some dimension to them, which I think for when you do a found footage movie, you have to do that because you tend to not have super realized characters, so you have to get actors who bring that charisma to them and make you like them, which I think what they do here. That's why some of those actors have gone on to do a lot of other stuff afterwards. Uh, you got a great script here by Drew Goddard, who just got off of his not, uh, Oscar nomination for The Martian. I mean, he's one of my favorite writers out there. I mean, he did The Awesome Cabin in the Woods. Plus, you got Matt Reeves, who did Let Me In, and uh, uh, what did he do? Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And I think just that mixture of all those people brings such a level of uniqueness and fun. Just a badass monster movie that's got scares, it's got laughs, and every time I start it up, I get pumped to, to go on that adventure again. This is easy. easy. This is a 10 out of 10 for me. Easily. I, I absolutely adore this film, and I look forward to watching it again. That's like a 10 plus for you, I'd imagine. Oh, yeah, and I know a lot of people don't feel that way about it, but it's just, it, it's one of my all-time favorite movies. So, that's all of the films wrapped up, but we do, this week, have a TV terror segment from Anthony Rotolo. He's been quite busy of late, so it's great that he's been able to send this in today. And this is a documentary from 1977, um, and it's called Alternative 3. So here is Anthony talking about Alternative 3 from UK's Anglia. By the late 60s, the Earth was already so trapped within an envelope of its own pollution that heat from the sun and the Earth's industrial processes was having increasing difficulty in escaping. Ten years earlier than Gerstein's prediction, the notorious greenhouse effect, a thickening of the outer atmosphere due to the eight-fold increase in the carbon dioxide levels, had become a reality. As the atmosphere became more dense, extreme variations of temperature were experienced, from intense heat to equally unprecedented cold. North America suffered the worst winter on record. Rivers froze solid, and even the great Niagara Falls was halted. In many areas, a state of emergency was ordered by the newly elected President Carter. But the most frightening discovery which scientists made was that last year's unmelted snow line is the next step to a future and unavoidable ice age. Well, hi, friends. This is Anthony back with more TV Terror. Today, I'd like to tell you about a found footage film called Alternative 3. This is a television program that was first broadcast in the UK. It aired only one time, and it was back in 1977. In fact, it was designed to air on April 1st. This was an April Fool's type of a gag. It actually got broadcast a little bit later on in June. In addition to it being broadcast in the UK, it went out to Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. And it was one of those 
found foot. I'm using the very broadly. I'm taking a lot of liberty calling it found footage because it falls into that broad category that was first defined by the Orson Welles radio production, The War of the Worlds, where it's just a fictional hoax. Later on, the BBC did something similar to that television program some of you may have heard of called Ghost Watch, in which they presented everything as a news program, much the way Orson Welles did. And in the course of that program, ghostly phenomenon was captured and caused a real, uh, really big sensation. Lots of calls to the TV station to find out if it was real or, or not. Similarly, this is what happened with Alternative 3. This came out, as I said, in 1977, and it was presented under the guise of a science program. It was a bit like the American show 60 Minutes, but more of like a science show. And the premise was that they were going to be investigating the United Kingdom's brain drain problem, that they were losing scientists. And as they dig deeper, they find a conspiracy. They stumble across this massive conspiracy. And what it's all about is that these journalists, as they go from one person to the other and they encounter paranoid people that don't want to talk, including an astronaut, they find out that there was this plan to make a space station on the moon and ultimately on Mars. And the point of this was that the powers that be, including the United States and the Soviet Union, were teaming up to create a place where the human race could settle because they believed that the planet Earth was going to be uninhabitable soon based on pollution and changes to the climate that would make it inhospitable to human life. So they had several alternative solutions. One had to do with reducing the human population. Another one had to do with just having a small cross-section of people in underground bunkers. But Alternative 3, which is the name of this show, was to create this lunar base and then ultimately a settlement on Mars. And it's very, very cool. They have a lot of footage from the period that makes it look very authentic. They show how an astronaut, while on mission, he was so, he was an astronaut who was not supposed to know about this, he stumbled across footprints and evidences of activity there that that shouldn't be there. And so it gets very intriguing. The announcer of the program, we cut away to the studio to the announcer showing how there had been missions and activity between the Soviet Union and the U.S. going to the moon, going to the dark side of the moon that we can't see, all concentrated in a certain location. And basically what they were creating was a way station so that they could actually move people ultimately to Mars for this vast scheme to save some of humanity. In terms of the tone of the show, it's very, very good. It's presented just like a documentary program. So when you watch it, you can really believe that it was real. In fact, people were calling in asking if it was a hoax. The actors on the show did things to make it feel more real. They purposely did not rehearse their lines so that their delivery would be imperfect. It would be a lot more natural. So very interesting program. A couple of interesting points about it. The script was written by Chris Miles and David Ambrose. And the music was written by Brian Eno. For those of you who are into ambient music, you may know his album, Music for Airports. Anyway, just a great show. It's out on YouTube, by the way, so you can 
check this out. And it's only about 45 minutes or 50 minutes. It's under an hour. So it's something you can fit in if you want to get this one under your belt. So that's Alternative 3 from 1977. We regret if the implications of what you've seen are less than optimistic for the future of life on this planet. It has been our task, however, to present the facts as we understand them and to await the response. Good night. So thank you to Anthony there for um, another segment of his TV terror uh, series looking at the hoax documentary Alternative 3. And we also have been lucky enough to have a bit of audio feedback from Talisha again this week. And she is talking about Wreck and Lake Mungo. So take it away, Talisha. Hi, guys. Going to quickly record some feedback on uh, Wreck and Lake Mungo here for the podcast. Uh, sorry I couldn't be with you today. Had a few things to do. Um, and I just wanted to comment and just say that uh, with found footage in particular, uh, that was always something that was kind of, uh, I guess, hard for me. <laughs> it's it's uh, one of those formats, those genres that actually kind of take me out of the story a little bit. So I've never really been a, a true found footage fan. And then I saw Wreck. And I uh, kind of saw a found footage film done right. And I got to say, it definitely kept me, uh, there's just definitely some suspense. I, I really, I mean, overall really liked it. I kind of like the setup. I like the situation. Um, you know, you still have a little bit of the impracticality. You have the suspense of disbelief where, you know, a, a cameraman uh, manages to ca- uh, catch the camera all the time. And, of course, they do try to um, address that in the plot with, you know, her telling him to, you know, we have to record this, all of it at all times. And, of course, he does uh, put the camera down at one point to help somebody. But still, uh, it, it, it is a really effective film. Very good. Very suspenseful. Dynamite ending. And, uh, yeah, I did enjoy this one. Uh, on to Lake Mungo. Uh, this is another one with a, I don't know. It's yeah, it is found footage. Obviously, it falls in that category, but it's very, very clever in that it does it like a documentary, and um, so you really don't have so much of the shaky cam and the and the grainy footage, and and this is one that just kind of keeps you guessing. It's it's kind of. Um, just whatever happened to uh, this young girl after a family vacation to Lake Mungo in Australia. Um, of course, it kind of you know makes you think a little bit of Twin Peaks with Laura Palmer. I mean, you know, she has a secret life and, you know, there was probably a cry for help. She wanted her family to know her better and, you know, she was always there. They just uh, had to know where to look or had to have, uh, needed to know what to ask. And, um, of course, it uh, it really just kind of keeps you guessing throughout the whole movie. I was impressed with, like, the different plot twists. And, you know, you think, you've, you think you're think uh, you going to see what happens, and then there's, there's suddenly something that's uh, not what you expected. <clears throat> it also made me think of another Australian movie, A Picnic at Hanging Rock, where, you know, some young girls go off on, a, on an excursion into the Australian bush, and a few of them disappear. Uh, one of them makes it back, but she either 
doesn't remember or isn't telling what happened to her. So there's a, you know, there's a little element of that as well in Lake Mungo. You can kind of see that with uh, just whether or not Alice really does make it back. Um, of course, uh, again, we, we get to the ending and uh, you get to the, the last credits and they actually kind of have some uh, little uh, excerpts of the, the previous footage where you thought the photos were doctored and it turns out Alice was there all along. Uh, they just didn't know where to look. Kind of a really sad and kind of bittersweet commentary on uh, the state of this family. But I uh, high recommend to that one as well, uh, Lake Mungo and Wreck, and uh, didn't catch the rest of them, but um, I know that the podcasters will do a great job talking about it today. So uh, thanks for allowing me to record the feedback and send it to you remotely, and um, have a good day. Bye. So thank you to Talisha for her um, audio feedback there on Wreck and Lake Mungo. She had some interesting uh, points on both of those films. And um, we've also had quite a bit of written feedback this week on, I think, if not every film, four out of the five. Um, so, uh, Lucad, do you want to start us off? Sure, my pleasure. First up, we have Kieran Fisher. He writes, Blair Witch, I much prefer the sequel but there's no denying the impact that this had on horror. The marketing campaign was absolutely genius, so much so that I became obsessed with the legend and would spend hours on the internet researching Burkittsville convinced that it was real. I would love it if a movie could fool me again the way that Blair Witch did. I know it was my childhood naivety at the time convincing me it was real. It's the only time in my life a horror film has made me abandon my logic. I even bought all the books by Cade Mural, assuming he was a real person writing about cases involve, involving the witch. I had the games as well. Oh man, we know who to talk to about the games now. I was truly obsessed, lol. I spent all my ICT classes in school reading forms of the supposed Burkittsville residents discussing their experiences with the forest and the witch. I don't know who planted them, but even even the internet was steeped with mythological regarding it. It was truly genius. I was a spotty kid back then, though. They couldn't fool me now. <laughs> there you go. The sequel is a masterpiece. I think it was the route they had to take. After the original, people wanted more on the mythological and the witch. And I think that's what they tried to give us. It still had a sense of ambiguity, but I think all around it just packed more in and made for a more fulfilling experience. Also, it had boobies. <laughs> it does have titties, and I'll give him that. I've always wanted a third film. I read there was a prequel in the works at one point, but that could have been Internet Jumbo. Cloverfield, this film is a masterpiece. Yeah. It's a prime example <laughs> of found footage done right. I totally agree with him there. Not only did it remind people how effective it could be, it done something completely new with the big monster movie slash kaiju genre that hadn't been done before. I also appreciate how they went for apocalyptic and scary again, quite reminis reminiscent of early Godzilla, back when he was a reality-based harbinger of doom. I've heard the original Godzilla is pretty darn scary you know it's crazy i've never seen the original gajira so someday it's a badass we'll cover, movie, yeah yeah someday we gotta cover that we'll we'll do like kaiju month or something yeah. and uh, maybe we can get kieran on as well that would be awesome wreck this is the best zombie film of the 21st century 
you know, I think I, I might have to agree with that. In this case, the use of found footage made it feel very claustrophobic, a prime example of the techniques, or excuse me, technique being applied to make the film more effective rather than to make it for cheaper and jump on a trend. So thanks so much for that feedback, Karen. We appreciate it and definitely uh, hope to hear from you on the show sometime or have you on. That would be awesome. And um, we also have feedback from Chris Downs. And he said, love the previous found footage episode, so really looking forward to this. That said, I might be one of the few who found the Poughkeepsie tapes to be more annoying than effective. Apart from the sections showing the killer's murders, I thought the rest was very shoddy, with some of the worst acting in a good while. Just didn't work for me at all, I'm afraid. I saw Blair Witch Project opening night at a midnight screening, which really weren't the norm back then. I was bored to tears, but the girl who um, I was with at the time was absolutely terrified and didn't let go of my arm all the way through. I've never revisited it, though, and would never doubt its influence and how cleverly it was marketed and made. I was just a little less susceptible to the whole found footage thing even then than most folks were, I guess. So thanks to Chris. Yeah. And he doesn't really agree with us on um, Poughkeepsie at all. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting to me. I mean, I, I thought found footage really didn't work for me, but he uh, it obviously just really doesn't work for him. Maybe he just hasn't found the right one yet, though. Yeah. He should watch Cloverfield. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Watch Clo- woman off found footage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, watch Cloverfield and uh, send us more feedback, Chris. But uh, seriously, as always, thanks, and, you know, we, uh, we always love hearing from you. Yeah. Wallaby Jones writes, Lucar Dragomir... Don't know if I have it in me to try and record another MP3. So just rambling here. Apart from being rather novel for the time, I liked the film in such a way to Golding's Lord of the Flies. I felt the central horror of it was watching these three more or less likable people tromping off into the unknown without a care because they're young and therefore invincible and know everything. And then... I like the minimalist aspect to it. Just a stick figure, just a pile of rocks. These items seem fraught with meaning, though clues to unlock the situation, if only they weren't so utterly vague. The ending ramps up the adrenaline, and the final shot gives you just enough time to connect what you're seeing with the stories at the start of the film. And then, thud, nothing more. You're certainly not alone. I saw it with a friend, a huge horror buff, and I believe he also dubbed it the worst. It just poked the right buttons for me. Well, thanks so much, Wallaby. I appreciate that. And, you know, I definitely recognize that a lot of people do love Blair Witch. It just, I don't know. Um, For me, it just, it kind of bored me to tears. And I, you know, I've talked about it enough already. But, I mean, hey, if you like it, that is awesome. And I feel like that's true of any film. As I said earlier, you know, um, if it works for you, it totally works for you. And that's cool. I think uh, if you get enjoyment out of it, that's cool. So thanks very much for the feedback, Wallaby. And, and please continue writing us. And uh, when you get time, we'd love to hear another MP3 from you as well. Yeah, he's got a very natural podcasting voice. He really does. <laughs> Next up, we have Brian Christopher. And he said, I have an old friend that was completely freaked out by that movie. 
and he went in believing it was really found footage. Uh, yeah, he isn't the sharpest tool in this shit, and he was like 22 when this movie came out. Oh, wow. That's funny. <laughs> oh, my God. That's hysterical. I mean, there there are people, as I said, there was a girl in my high school really believed Blair Witch was real, but, you know, <laughs> she was probably 14, 15. I mean, we were kids at the time, you know. I just, yeah. I mean, I knew, I knew it wasn't real, even with the marketing campaign, but it, I don't know, some people will believe anything they uh, read on the internet that's that was true even 20 years ago so yes that's true that is true yeah <laughs> um thanks to brian and we also have some feedback from jules boyle who says um by the time blair witch project made it here everyone knew it was just a movie but it didn't detract from the experience for me i went with about 15 mates to see it Half of us were bored rigid, the other half um, were blown away and properly given the fear. Talking about it afterward, the ones who were bored were folk who weren't really paying attention to all of the interviews at the start. Those who had were completely chilled by things like the three cans outside the tent and that ending. It's a bloody masterpiece in my opinion. And I actually really like the second one. There, I said it. Think it was on a hiding to nothing coming after such a surprise hit. Another found footage film would have got less flack, if not um, great reviews, but I really liked what they did with it. It was a right call, I think. I loved all of the only comics that came out around it at the time. The world was so rich and had real scope to tell stories in. The second film seemed to kill all interest stone dead, sadly. So thanks to Jules there, and he's mentioning the um, the comics as well. Like I said, I'd like to get hold of them myself. And we normally have a podcast recommendation, but as this is a special episode, um, I just have a book recommendation very, very quickly um, for a lot of the research for today's show, particularly around Blair Witch. I used a book called Found Footage Horror Films, Fear and the Appearance of Reality by Alexandra Heller Nicholas. And I mentioned this before on the um, first episode of this found footage series. It's um, an absolutely cracking read. I'd recommend it to anybody who's interested in fan footage. It covers a lot of the kind of influences and evolution um, topics that we discussed in the first episode, you know, safety films, snuff fictions, television. It goes into detail about Ghost Watch. Um, it looks at the Blair Witch Project. It looks at Paranormal Activity, which, of course, we'll be covering as the main uh, film in the, the third and final installment of this kind of miniseries. But it also breaks down fan footage films into ones about the family um, in terms of topics, exorcism films, and also nation history and identity. So it's a really fascinating book. Um, it is on the academic side, but it isn't, um, you know, dense. It's, it's quite a, a nice read. So I definitely recommend that if anybody's interested. And I'll put links on uh, Facebook to it. We would love to hear your thoughts on this week's topic, next week's topic, or anything else horror-related. So please email your messages in MP3 or WAV format to United Nations of Horror at gmail.com or just drop us a line at its address. Um, also, you can now call in and leave us a voicemail with your comments, and that is 404-480-2545. Um, if you let the number ring a few times, you'll be taken to the voicemail, but please make sure to leave your name and where you're calling from. Um, also head over to the website for all the latest podcast information, articles, and Mike's fantastic reviews. 
and well, that is they are great i love reading them um that is united nations of horror.com um also be sure to join the facebook group and that is www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash un of horror so thanks to lucad and mike for joining me today and until next week you've been listening to the united nations of horror